0: Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
2: Hey, it's Gonzano I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go.
0: Initialize sequence.
1: Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth.
0: Well, I had a couple
2: of interviews I was super excited to hear. And I got to be honest... They uh, they disappointed. I was super excited to hear Mark Spears' sit-down interview with Damian Lillard. Really interested in what Lillard might say. Would he look into the camera? Would he talk specifically to Portland? And would he uh, would he say what's wrong with uh, the Trailblazers uh, organization and the trajectory? Would would he say the quiet part out loud, so to speak? Uh, he did not. So. Uh, I'm also trying to think about whether or not you've got, um, whether or not you've got John Fisher of the Oakland A's doing a sit-down interview and, uh, doing a, uh, interview with Raj Mathai in the Bay Area on one of the Bay Area TV stations. Get this. Oakland A's owner sitting down and essentially giving a, the first public interview and, uh, and the first public interview, with a bunch of questions that are uh, that are uh, swirling around, swirling around the whole uh, operation. Will he sell the team? Is he uh, is he going to uh, apologize to A's fans? What's the final straw in Oakland? And John Fisher, the A's owner, as I settled in to listen to this interview. Did the most unthinkable thing during the interview. I'll talk about these two interviews in this segment, and I want your reaction as well as I play a little bit of what Damian Lillard, uh, what Damian Lillard had to say as he sat down with Mark Spears on the Blazers front.
3: Here it is. I'm not going. I'm not going to speak on the Blazers. It's a lot of a lot of love and respect, but I don't. You know, I won't speak on the Blazers. It's well documented that. There have been a trade request um, it is to the Miami Heat. Is there anything that you could say about the trade request? I can say that there, there was, and I would just prefer not to speak on the Trailblazers.
2: Prefer not to speak. He's not saying it. He won't go there. I want you to tell me, uh, what do you think it's about for Damian Lillard? Did he handle that right? Handle it poorly? Uh, as it pertains to him talking, finally, about the things that he should be talking about. Uh, Damian Lillard speaking, and there it is, Mark Spears asking him, kind of, hey, you know, what's going on with the Blazers? 29 seconds of talk about the Blazers. Meanwhile, you got John Fisher, the uh, Oakland A's owner, who basically said he's sorry it hasn't worked out in Oakland. And this is this is kind of bothering me the way that these interviews went down. Lillard's interview ends up being a nothing burger. We all kind of know uh, where Lillard's head is. I think maybe I'm guessing, trying to read his mind, trying to read his actions. But in the end, as um, I, uh, I I left that kind of unsatisfied, thinking like oh, I didn't learn anything new, didn't learn anything I didn't already know. Meanwhile, you've got uh, Raj Mathai at NBC in the Bay Area, who is. Granted, this amazing sit-down interview with John Fisher, the Oakland—you know—they go and they sit down together at his house, house, and uh, you know Raj Mathai gets into his living room, settling in again to listen to this fantastic interview between John Fisher, the A's owner, and uh, Raj Mathai, who is uh, you know the uh, the TV anchor who is dispatched to his house and given the access. And as Matthias sits down for this blasted interview, um, it ends up being a non-interview because the the subject of the interview, John Fisher, said no video and no audio recording. Made him go with a transcript only as it pertains to uh, this, this whole thing. And I will tweet out the audio from that because it just blew me away. It just absolutely blew me away that, it was basically a non-interview interview, and I could not, for the life of me, figure out why it was that the uh, the Oakland A's owner would subject himself to an interview, but not really. Other than the fact that he, you know, he didn't want to really do an interview. Uh, what is going on with these things? Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five is the phone number. I definitely want to hear from you on this front. But let's start with Damian Lillard, and then I will play the audio coming out of the Bay Area. But give me an idea, uh, as you think about this, Stephen, Damian Lillard's interview, like, should he have said something? Is there possibly something he could have said?
4: I mean, I wish he would have said something because we didn't learn anything. I think what it did, it confirmed that he does only really want to go to Miami. uh, But we already kind of knew that, right? And, you know, Adam Silver came out and he put out the memo to all teams and to Dame and said, hey, you you can't be doing that and that's what he kind of confirmed because Mark Spears did say, you know, was there a request of a trade to the Miami Heat? And he said, yeah, there was. He didn't refute that. So I thought that was the only kind of interesting part, but it was, it just kind of confirmed what we knew. We knew he wants to go to Miami. We know that he wants out of Portland. And that's, you know, that's what he said. He didn't say anything, he, you know. I do wish he would have said, you know, point blank, like, yeah, I requested a trade. And the reason I did this is because, you know, we just couldn't build a championship contender in Portland. We didn't do enough to put around me. But he didn't want to say anything. And, you know, it, it kind of goes to what Dame does. Dame doesn't want to, like, step on everyone's toes. He doesn't want to be perceived as the bad guy. So, you know, I understand why he did it. I just wish there was a little bit more. And I wish he was just super clear about what he wanted. But we're just not going to get that at Dame. Dame's just not going to do that.
2: Yeah. I, I just don't like the, the idea. He's not going to speak... About Portland, he's not going to speak about the Blazers, Um, but you know, here's this thing lingering that's the most important thing in the room that we all wish he would just kind of say out loud. Like, you know, here's the issue. I asked them to, uh, you know, put talent around me, and they didn't do it, and uh, because of that, I asked for a trade. I mean, just say it. Uh, Conversely, it's it's
4: not not hard to say that we all understand. Like, that's the reason. Like, you just say it; it'd be okay. We're not going to get mad at
2: him. He's so gone, though. I mean, he's so in his mind; he's he's checked out. I mean, you could tell in watching that, and he's checked out. And I think if as the season grows closer, if the Blazers do nothing, and I expect they're going to do nothing, I think this is going to get more and more uncomfortable. Meanwhile, you want to talk about uncomfortable. Here's Raj Mathai on NBC Bay Area who had this exclusive interview with the Oakland A's owner, John Fisher. Goes to Fisher's house, sits on his couch, does this interview. Like, I'm seeing video with no sound, and then I realize they don't have any sound because John Fisher would not allow the interview to be... Audio or video recorded.
5: That Bay Area exclusive. After 18 years of silence, we're finally hearing from A's owner John Fisher, and it's angering a lot of A's fans. The billionaire was blunt. He gave up on Oakland because he says he felt the deal was taking too long. Today, we learned the A's have submitted to the league their formal application to relocate to Las Vegas, Nevada. The 62 year old Fisher gave me his side of the story. We arrived at the peninsula home of John Fisher not knowing what to expect. Is he the reclusive billionaire that's ripping the hearts out of A's fans? Or is he following the script of the Raiders and Warriors, who also left Oakland for the riches of a new stadium? By his request, no video or audio of our interview. Just an old-fashioned Q&A. No question was out of bounds. No question pre-screened.
2: You talk about a letdown. TV reporter sent over to John Fisher's house, allowed the access, gonna finally get to pin down the owner with questions about, you know, why, you know, did you, did you do Oakland dirty? You know, have you given up on the team? Will you sell the team? Fans are crying for you to sell the team. What makes you think you should, you're able to come in here and, and, uh, you know, rip this team out of Oakland and take it to Las Vegas? Like, like real questions and then follow up questions. And Raj Mathai goes, you know, Upon his request, no video or audio, just an old-fashioned Q&A. That's not an old-fashioned Q&A by TV standards. That is an opportunity for a billionaire owner to have a one-sided conversation. I was disappointed in the questions, disappointed in the Q&A, and disappointed in Raj Mathai, who you know, I know and I've crossed paths with in the Bay Area and other places that he's worked, but man, that was such even. Is that an interview when, hey, no audio and no video, just an old-fashioned Q&A?
4: Well, it goes kind of to what we talked about yesterday with documentaries and how you can't necessarily believe them and how all these people who are in positions of power want the final say on what it is, even though we know that's not the story, right? Like Urban Meyer, we know he it wasn't a great time at Florida. They had a lot of parties, and they wanted to talk about the documentary how, oh, you know, it was just Urban Meyer changing changing the scenery and changing the culture. And now with this interview with John Fisher, like, yeah, I'll talk to everybody, but we can't, we can't have video like, I, I understand this. Like people don't want to look bad, but at the same time, we all know that these aren't great people and they're doing things that are in the interest of themselves and it's selfish for them. And so, yeah, it's
2: not even an interview. It's just it's like, not an interview. It's I never would have done it. I never would have consented to it.
4: Yeah. It's just like, you know what? Look, I'm trying to get some good PR by saying I'm going to talk to people when I'm not actually going to talk to people.
2: It's not an interview. And and Mathai and the producers at NBC gave him, su- gave John Fisher such an easy time. No follow-up questions to obvious things that were questionable, that were said. Uh, I don't want to call them lies, but there were th- some things you could have dug down on uh, with John Fisher that really would have got to the bottom of what was really happening uh, with the A's. And, you know, none of that was broached and really disappointing to kind of see that, Unfold. I just don't, and you know, along those lines, you know, we were talking yesterday about Coach Prime and the documentary that is uh, going to take place at Colorado. And it's really interesting to see this tug of war in today's world that is happening over the control of the content. And, you know, the teams and the franchises all want to control the narrative. That started like a decade ago when they launched their own in house kind of air quotes here news agency like trailblazers.com or nbc sports northwest they were they were covering the teams but they were covering the teams with the sort of the blessing of the organization and and with the slant with the positive slant of the organization in mind even some entities like mlb.com got caught up in that for several years where it was like mostly propaganda and not real news coverage of the teams and the leagues now we've seen it kind of move towards Um, hey, we'll trade you access in exchange for favorable coverage. And the documentaries fall right in there. This Florida documentary uh, down in the swamp, you know, the untold story of Florida football, and, you know, it doesn't have Irvin Meyer uh, in a negative light, doesn't show his scuffle at practice with Percy Harvin. The Pouncey brothers aren't in it. Um, You know, you don't have Aaron Hernandez, any of the controversy surrounding Aaron Hernandez. It's like this... You know, everything's glossed over and sanitized. And in the end, there's just nothing to it. Um, You know, it makes me have more respect for the documentaries that are put out there that do kind of balance a little bit. And I did some digging on the Michael Jordan, the last dance documentary and found out that the director on that last dance documentary, you know, made a deal with Michael Jordan to get him involved. And the deal wasn't, hey, Michael Jordan, you get final cut approval. They didn't do that which I really respect, what they said to Jordan is, hey, we'll let you review the episodes. You can give us notes, but we get final approval on whether or not we make changes. And then Jordan asked for, hey, you know, you got Isaiah Thomas saying some negative things about me. You got Scottie Pippen saying some things about me. What I would want is any time that somebody is saying something about me, I want the opportunity to respond to it. And I think that's fair. That's fair. Like, that gives the viewer an opportunity to say, hey, there was an issue here with hands were not shaken. There was an issue with, you know, Isaiah Thomas saying he was, you know, booted off the team because of Michael Jordan. And then you have Jordan sitting in his living room drinking a cocktail. You know, he had a, he had a cigar for one of the episodes. And then his mom said, I don't like the cigar. Get it out of there. But Jordan's sitting in his living room. That's why we saw all that footage of Jordan in his living room because Jordan wanted the ability to kind of rebut. Or, or answer to some of the negative things that were said, but they didn't take them out of the documentary. They just let Jordan kind of respond to it, and I respect that way more than this sanitized, cleansed. Let's just have a, uh, let's just have a propaganda documentary. uh... You know, I don't know, Mark Spears. At least he asked the damn question of Damian Lillard. I would have liked a, a little more of a follow-up, but at least he asked the damn question. Sean's and Sandy, I want your phone calls on the Damian Lillard front at 503-417-7575. Sean, go ahead. What's on your
6: mind? Hey, thanks for taking my call, John. I I hear Damian being a droop. He gets real droopy, and he's done this before. He's a real doggy downer, and it really sucks. I hate to see him be like that because he doesn't have to be like that, but that's just who he is. That's his personality, and um, it is what it is, and I just hope that, you know his next his next chapter in life gets a little bit better. I hope he gets what he wants in life, but you know he likes the dollars and he's been getting that, so that's why you know Blazers gave him his first opportunity, they gave him all the dollars he wanted. They they let him you know they they gave him the the keys to the city as soon as he got here, so that he can't say nothing really too bad about us. And I just think his next chapter in life's good. Do you? I
2: actually think that you speak for a lot of people, Sean. And I think, and I think. The, the, the fan base would be very forgiving. I think if Damian Lillard came out and said, Yes, I've asked for a trade. Um, here's why. I suspect the reason, like, you know, I'm not, I don't want to speak for him, but I suspect the reason is hey, I want to compete, and this franchise doesn't appear to be interested in competing in the short term. They're in a rebuild. It doesn't really line up with my timeline. I feel like I have three or four more really good seasons where I could be productive and help lead a team to a championship. And I really want to do that. And, oh, by the way, um, you know, I feel like I could build my brand in Miami and I have an opportunity down there. And, oh, by the way, the house that I'm selling, the second house that he has in Westland that his mom lives in, by the way, is technically owned by a company. The holding company has an address in Miami, so he's already got, you know, some tax benefits that are working out of that area. You know, Damian Lillard is doing what's best for Damian Lillard. And I think there are a lot of Blazer fans who would empathize with him and say, hey, I I don't blame you, man. Um, Look, I'm sick of this franchise, too. Because as a media member, I have to be honest with you. Like, I get it. I'm looking at this Blazers organization. They're hard to cover from a media standpoint. Everything's difficult. They don't, you know, they make nothing easy. They make some screwy decisions like they lock up some players in long-term contracts or they trade away players and then then suddenly they go we're not we're we're not in a rebuild we're building around Lillard and then they draft a young player like you know they don't really do anything with any kind of consistency that makes you believe that they're going anywhere like I think a lot of fans feel the same way as Damian Lillard and I think that's probably why fans wouldn't blame him but I'm just a little bit perplexed on why he's saying, I won't speak about the Blazers at all. Again, it's, you know, it's passive-aggressive. Like, just say it, man. I think I'd have more respect for it if you you said it out loud.
4: We totally understand. And that's the thing. Blazer fans understand, like... Blazers fans have been asking for a better roster for how many years? Since you know, since two thousand or nineteen ninety nine, when they actually had you know competitive rosters, they've been asking for it, and they've had this guy in Dame who has you know wanted to stay in Portland and has signed the contract. Yeah, he earned a lot of money, but you know what? He wanted to stay in Portland as well. He wanted to be loyal to Portland. Portland was loyal to him, but they added nothing around him. And you know, for how good Dame is, he still has flaws in his game. And you have to address that situation. They never did. They just gave in to, you know what, we're going to let Dame do what he wants to do. And now Dame, at this age, at 33 years old, he says, you know what, I want to win a championship. And I want you to put a team around me. Joe Cronin comes in and doesn't do it. Obviously, he wanted to build his own team that he liked. And now Dame wants out. And you know, it would be nice just to hear Dame say that about the organization because we all know it's true. Like, that's the thing. It, It wouldn't be a bad look because all Blazer fans, and I think all the NBA knows, that the Blazers did not do enough to put around Damon Lillard to help him, you know, uh, succeed in the NBA.
2: Yeah, Lillard did an interview with Stephen A. Smith, you know, during the season in which he talked about how much time he has.
3: I think I can. I think I can be on the level that I'm on now for another three or four years. Mm. I, my feeling. game, my game isn't based off of athleticism. I think I. will I think because of how I live my life and how I train, I'll always be quick, I'll always be a, a high level shooter, I'll always be a high level thinker, um, and I know how to play the game. Like I know how to be this version of myself, it's got to right. be healthy, um, you know, it's not based on being above the rim, it's not based on being faster than people. I play quick, I change pace, I can shoot, I know how to manipulate the game, I watch film, you know, I'm a student of it. So I, I know what it would take for me to be able to sustain this level, and I know that I can do it.
2: How, does he is he telling the truth there? Do you think he has three or four more good years?
4: Um, I would say he'll be good. Yeah, in three to four years, I don't think he'll be an elite player like he was this last season or the years before. I, I think. He is correct on that he doesn't it's not athleticism, it's explosiveness that he uses. And I do think that's gonna go down at some point in his career when he gets to age thirty-five, thirty-six. Like I I don't see him being as explosive as he was this past season. That just kinda happens in the NBA, especially the point guards, uh smaller players on the court that get beat up a little bit. That's Dame. I, I, I don't expect him to be, you know, a first, second team all NBA guy in three to four years, but I think he'll be all star caliber. Uh, you know when he's 36 years old because he, he that shooting's never going to go away but he's going to have games where he just can't explode enough uh to consistently get enough points
2: i also think he will evolve a little bit and i think we've watched chris paul and some other players evolve so i still think he's got a lot of good play left in him and i and i don't disagree that that he's got 3 or 4 years where he can be a player and a starter in the league but i kind of wonder at what number and his salary is going to push towards $60 million in year three and year four, uh, that extension that he signed. And then I, and then, you know, what's ringing in my ears is all that talk that Lillard gave over the years about ring culture and not being the kind of player that was going to chase a ring and what loyalty meant to him and all of that stuff. And it's ringing in the back of my head as he's saying, I don't want to talk about the trailblazers. I
3: enjoyed the, uh... The bonding part of it, like, we spend more time with each other than anybody. But now it's like, that don't count. Regular season don't count. Get a ring. You know what I'm saying? Like, who? This guy's the MVP. This guy did this. He the first. It's like, bro, what, like, what is this stuff? Like, what is this? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, and I don't want, this ain't even, I don't want to make it about my situation. But I was talking after a game like a week ago, and I was just like, they was asking me about, damn, but, like, to win a ring. And I'm like, bro, I don't need to prove to y'all that I want to win a ring. Why the hell do I play? Like, I don't need to prove that to y'all. But we cannot keep acting like, while I understand we play to win championships, we all want to win a championship, we can't keep acting like nothing matters. Like, the rest of the stuff, the journey doesn't matter. We can't keep doing that. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like there's so many ways that the league is different. There's so many ways, and I, I think about it all the time. Where I'm like, man, I just don't. I don't know if I don't know if I'm if I can just play a long, long time because I don't, I don't enjoy what, what the NBA as a whole is becoming.
2: Is Damian Lillard, part of that NBA now, by saying I want out?
4: Um a little bit yeah i do think so um and i think it's it may have just got to him enough where he said you know it, it the ring stuff doesn't matter it's about the grind it's about you know being with the guys by asking to go to the heat and not just fulfilling your contract of saying you know because he signed that contract extension in portland it hasn't even kicked in yet and he already wants out so to me Unless Portland is, like, treating him badly behind the scenes or, like, hurting him or something, and he wants out of Portland for that reason, if it's just about on the court, then, yeah, I think he's kind of given into that a little bit and says, you know, what, rings is all that matters, which is fine, but that's just gone away from what he has said his whole entire career, right?
3: Uh, I mean, we didn't really get too in-depth about, you know, you got to do this or you got to do that to win the championship because sometimes you you just get lucky. You know, sometimes things just fall in your favor, and that's what it takes sometimes at this level, or that's a part of it. But I think the the way that it's being done now is, you know, players are, you know, in communication, and they're trying to piece teams together and make their team as strong as possible so that they have a chance to win it. And, uh, you know, as much as I, I do have, you know, guys that I like around the league that I would, you know, love to play with, why wouldn't I? You know, it's just some things that I, I know are not me.
2: Not him. But it, apparently he's had enough. Coming up, we're going to talk about Nike and the mistrust or the distrust that fans have when it comes to the Portland Thorns and the Portland Timbers organization. We'll be talking with a sports business reporter who's been covering uh, a lawsuit at Nike. Nike would like to suppress and seal that lawsuit. You'll find out more about it coming up. Plus, John Papadakis in the 4 o'clock hour, former USC football player, sounds off. If you've never heard Papadakis talk and can give an interview. You're going to want to be here. And we'll get to the bottom of Utah next week. they got a big football game with uh, Florida. Josh Newman, who covers Utah football, is going to tell us whether or not Cam Rising is going to start for the Utes. Where is Kyle Whittingham leaning today? Leave it here. Get the BFT. On tomorrow's show, we've got Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach. He'll be on with us. Also tomorrow, Eric Reveno Oregon State uh, men's basketball assistant coach and a guy who's coached in the ACC. I'm going to ask him uh, kind of what he thinks about uh, what's going on in college athletics uh, as, uh, as a whole. Uh, Nike, always an interesting uh, character and uh, company in our footprint. Demi Lawrence is a reporter who does a fantastic job on behalf of the Portland Business Journal covering sports and business. Demi joining us now to talk about Nike and some other things. Thanks for making time.
7: Yeah, no, thanks for having me, John.
2: Give me an idea with this Nike story. um, You know, what is it rooted in? Why does this become a lawsuit? How does this end up crossing your radar?
7: Yeah, so uh, about in 2018 is when the lawsuit was filed uh, on sexual harassment and pay inequity allegations. This was around the time we saw some stories from the Wall Street Journal and other outlets like that coming up about Nike's workplace culture, uh, someplace calling it a boys club and things like that. Uh, came up on my radar because uh, I cover all of the footwear apparel companies here in Portland. So this was a major lawsuit that when I came on uh, about a year and a half ago to the Business Journal, that was just kind of the bread and butter of what the position would be covering, a big part of it. Uh, and, yeah, it's been ongoing since then, a bunch of twists and turns. And the latest uh, filing that I reported on today was about uh, media groups, including my paper, the Portland Business Journal, and a couple others, intervening uh, on the lawsuit to get some more information that Nike was uh, protecting under its uh, sealed protective order. Uh, Ultimately, the filing that came out today was from Nike's lawyers uh, saying various reasons why they don't believe that additional information uh, should be, uh, you know, taken out of the seal.
2: Yeah, basically, they don't want this unsealed, they would like to keep it private. I, give me an idea, because I do know some people who worked at Nike, and I noticed that there was sort of this exodus of women who were vice presidents or leading divisions who were kind of leaving the company. And are we talking about a cultural issue at Nike as this lawsuit uh, pertains to, or is it just a few bad actors? What are we talking about?
7: Well John, I guess it depends on who you ask, right? But if you know you're if you're talking about both sides, there are kind of several sides to this. Uh, Nike says they don't want additional information uh, which mostly consists of the names of some of the folks who were involved whether they were alleged assailants or alleged victims uh, they don't want those names to be made public they say for privacy reasons you know in the filing they use the, uh, the term media circus they don't want it to just become this big thing where these folks' dirty laundry for lack of a better term is just aired out to the public if it turns out from you know the legal proceedings that these allegations are false now if you were to ask the people who are on the side of these women who have filed this lawsuit you know it could be argued that nike wants to protect these alleged assailants uh if it was proven that they ended up doing some of the things that that are alleged but it it is in terms of culture um you know there was a filing for class action certification uh, which definitely shows that the plaintiffs think that it's more than a few bad apples uh that Class certification was denied and that denial was upheld, but I do know the plaintiff's plan to appeal that, but I don't think that'll be coming anytime soon. So I do think it is a culture issue uh, just from A, as long as it's gone on and B, from all the things that I've heard from a bunch of different people uh, about working there and about being a woman there. But again, it really depends on who you ask.
2: Demi Lawrence is with us, Portland Business Journal. Are are any of the people speaking out yet or is the the lawsuit kind of uh, moving along behind the scenes with without, you know, some of the uh the the people who were I guess uh offended or um you know who were singled out or maybe um oppressed at Nike uh speaking publicly or is it just a lawsuit at this point?
7: It's mostly just a lawsuit at this point and I think that's because it's just gone on for so long. Like I said, you know, it was twenty eighteen when it was filed. We're now in twenty twenty three with mm-hmm. really no end in sight. So, you know, for the protection of the lawsuit and for the folks involved, not a lot of people are speaking out, which is totally understandable. But back in 2017 and 2018, when this really was, uh, you know, dug up and brought into the central face. Uh, There was a lot of people speaking out about it, um, but whether or not people choose to do that now, again, the class action certification denial kind of throws a wrench into some things as to whether or not folks choose to speak out on their behalf because beforehand, you know, oh, they could be part of the class action. But with that kind of uh, not necessarily in the forefront anymore, uh, those things are kind of uh, muddied a bit.
2: Media circus. I just love that that's thrown out there. Like, you know, it would be (laughs) such a circus to to find out you know, some of the stuff that went on behind the scenes. We're talking to Demi Lawrence, Portland Business Journal. Uh, give me an idea. What What's the next step in this lawsuit?
7: Oh, gosh, there's so many next steps because we have so many moving parts, right? Of course, you have the plaintiffs and defendants, but you also have the media interveners who are also on this case. So, right now based on the filing that came yesterday uh we are waiting on the judge ruling on this renewed motion for an intervention from the media companies and again that was filed because nike wanted to keep some things under seal that these media companies including mine believed uh needed to be made public and so we're going to wait on the judge's ruling on that uh we're also waiting like i said for class certification appeal Um, i've spoken to the lawyers for the plaintiffs they've said they plan to appeal but there's really no uh knowledge on when that's going to happen um, and not really any knowledge on what it's going to be heard but because of how long this has gone on and what I have talked to with the lawyers for the plaintiffs they remain confident that's why they keep going uh, with this case so really it's kind of a lot of moving parts and right now we're just kind of waiting for uh, the judge to rule on what they think is best as far as immediate intervention and then possibly class certification to come much later down the road.
2: Great stuff. Great work on that. We'll continue to check in with you. I want to pivot a little bit to another story you've worked on. It's sort of the relationship with the Thorns and the public, public trust, uh, everything that we have uh, learned in the last couple of years about the environment with the Thorns, the coach and, um, you know, the ownership situation with Merritt Paulson. Um, what happens on the Thorn side? They're trying to rebuild some trust with the public, how are their efforts stacking up in your mind?
7: Yeah, I'm so glad you wanted to talk about this because this has been a story that's important to my heart. You know, I was born and raised a female athlete. I played softball my entire life as a kid, so my, my heart is near and dear to this. And as far as where things are at with the thorns and the efforts that have been made to rebuild trust, I did a cover story a few months ago about this. And what I really found from it was that the efforts on the thorns, I think, are really there, and they mostly align with what best practice says. Um, I spoke with somebody who works with these kinds of situations where, you know, there needs to be trust rebuilt between an organization and the public. And, and I spoke with a guy who works on that and kind of told him what the Thorns were doing, some of the things they're doing. They hold a lot of team and fan forums to discuss certain topics, you know, whether that topic be about rebuilding the trust we're talking about here or just generally about the season, right? And it also helps the Merritt has said that he plans on selling the thorns. I've been told that that sell is imminent by the end of the year. Uh, They put together an accountability website, which, albeit, hasn't been updated since October of last year. Fans are a little bit upset about that. But it does detail all the things that they have done, uh, which includes hiring a VP of Community and Social Impact, uh, Dr. Beavers has been with the thorns, I think, for most of this year, uh, working with a local firm, workplace change to do organizational assessments, new player and fan feedback mechanisms, new ways for fans and players to really tell the club how they feel or if there's any concerns they need to raise. And so the efforts are really there. Um, I just think the issue lies in communication. I just really think that because a lot of these issues stem back to Paul Riley, uh, many, many years ago, that some of these issues for folks within the thorns are old, uh, whereas these issues for the public are only as of knowledge of the last few years, specifically mm-hmm. as of last October when we got the Yates report. So I think there's just not necessarily communication to fans there as to what they're doing. I think maybe they just expect fans to take it at face value. When what I'm hearing from fans and best practice is that these organizations need to communicate effectively exactly what they're doing, how they're doing it, and keep fans updated. And that's just something that, unfortunately, I don't think is happening, even though they are doing the work that best practice says they should.
2: Yeah, and it's really interesting to see, you know, as the, as the Timbers make a personnel move with their coach, Giovanni Sabarese, right. Merritt Paulson's quoted in the news release, and I kind of went, ooh, like, you know, how is that going to be received? And so as much as the Timbers and the Thorns want to separate these entities, I still think people see Merritt Paulson involved in, and look at it and go, ooh, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure how I should feel about this.
7: Yeah, well, let's be very clear that Paulson still owns the Timbers and doesn't have intent to, he hasn't expressed intent up to this point to let that go, only the Thorns. So still at that point, uh, you know, he's still involved at that point. And so... You know, it's interesting because the Timbers and the Thorns do have similar fan bases. They're essentially the same, different sides of the same coin. And so I I think it's a great question to ask kind of how that relationship is going to go and and personnel changes specifically with the Timbers. Uh, It's just a very interesting time for the club as a whole uh, because, yes, they're two different teams, but they play on the same field. They're organized under the same umbrella. And what happens to one doesn't turn affect another.
2: Tammy, I really appreciate your work. I appreciate you spending some time with us. We'd love to get you back on as things develop. Demi Lawrence, uh, Portland Business Journal. Thank you. Thank you. There she goes. Good stuff. Um, Just rich. Good reporter doing good work, uh, you know, for the Portland Business Journal on the sports business beat. I'd love to get her back on and talk to her more as this stuff develops. Nike certainly has some questions it needs to answer. Uh, I find it interesting that they are – expending so much effort and energy to try to try to keep names out of the public. I don't believe for a second that they're trying to protect um, the, uh, the people who uh, have uh, essentially been whistleblowers. I, I think they're trying to protect executives. Uh, secondarily, uh, Timbers and the Thorns, long, long road when you're trying to rebuild trust with the public. And I think it's going to take time, and it's going to take consistency, and it's going to take... Uh, the organization being as transparent as it possibly can, both organizations, in order for people to go, okay, it's all right, I can trust this, I can feel good about wearing these jerseys and being at games. Coming up, our big splash. Leave it here. I've got a whole bunch of guests who want on the show, and I'm trying to figure out, this is kind of like Grand Central Station. We've got Josh Newman, covers Utah football coming up top of the hour, 4 o'clock, to talk about Pac-12 football season, where. Utah's mindset is, will Cam Rising be the starter? All of that stuff at 4 o'clock. 424 will be John Papadakis, former USC football player, team captain. uh, Tony Bennett-like crooner, restaurateur, booster. He's a guy who played at the Pac-12 years and years and years ago. It's probably the Pac-8 back when Papadakis was playing, and he's the father of Petros Papadakis, the broadcaster on FS1. He's always a great guest, a lot of fun, 424, be here. Now, I just got a note, DJ Uyengalele wants on the show. Um, I'm trying to fit him in, possibly in the 5 o'clock hour today. If DJ makes the 5 o'clock hour, he will join us. Otherwise, DJ likely on tomorrow's show along with Dan Lanning, University of Oregon coach, on tomorrow's show, along with Eric Reveno, the uh, basketball assistant coach at Oregon State, on tomorrow's show, along with Nick Carlin-Voit, University of Portland men's soccer coach, on tomorrow's show. We got a whole bunch of interviews that we got to clear, but here's my thing, guys. Like, I don't like to do interviews just to do interviews. Every single one of these interviews that I – uh that I have coming down the pipeline on the show um I really want to do all these interviews. Are we okay having that many interviews on the show in the next 2 days? Well, I think
4: yeah because it's the it's the quality of guests. If it was just, you know, if it was just quantity over quality, I'd push back on you a little bit. But like all these people that you're having on, like they have important stories to tell or like it's an important thing to hear that's coming up soon. So I'm fine with it. I'm fine with having these type of guests on because it's just the quality of them, John. We, we don't need qual- quantity. We need quality.
2: I also want to give away some Mariners tickets. We will uh, uh, give those away on today's show. Um, shall we give them away maybe in the uh, 4 o'clock hour? That would be a good time to give them away. I want to ask Judah. Judah, are you okay with all these interviews? Is the podcast team going to be okay, like, churning out a whole bunch of podcasted interviews? DJ Uangalele, uh, Dan Lanning. Uh, you know the the Utah football beat reporter John Papadakis singing some Tony Bennett, Eric Reveno blasting the NCAA on tomorrow's show. Um, you know all of that. Are we going to be okay uh, podcasting all that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing big uh, big smiles on the uh, the interns around here. They they live for this. <laughs> extra, live for work. this.
2: <laughs> extra work, extra work, yeah. uh, more podcasts. It's the best. Um,
1: no, Steven's right though. The the quality, the the time of the year, it all fits.
2: Anthony Gold, Oregon State wide receiver, he wants on next week. He's going to be our Jamba athlete every week that we bring on to talk about the season, and he'll be our guy. And, again, we've gone from Jaquiz Rogers to Sean Mannion to um, Isaiah Hodgins to Jaden Grant and Jack Coletto, and we've just continued to have Oregon State football players who want to do that Jamba interview every week. And thanks for Steve and the team at Jamba for sponsoring that. but. Should be really good. I'll have, I'll have an answer back from DJ shortly. Can I just named, say, yeah.
1: last night I literally had a dream. DJ Young on a play action deep ball to Anthony Gould for like a seventy yard touchdown. Brought to you by Jamba. Brought to you by Java. <laughs> that is going to happen at least eight times this year. Book it. Like that. Yeah. That's that's the offense. They're going to be so good at running the ball, and then whenever they want. They can lift the lid with DJ to Gould. It's going to be awesome.
2: Gould can run. Yeah, fly. He can fly. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to, at Oregon, though, too, Troy Franklin and Bo Nix. That's going to be a thing.
1: It will. It, it it will. That week two game, I was talking to Steven about it today. It's going to take a lot for me not to pick Texas Tech.
2: They're They're a good team. That's like a seven win team playing at home in think, the big twelve footprint. And, I think, it's and Oregon,
1: than, I think it's more than seven.
2: You think so? Yeah. And Oregon's got uh Oregon's got, you know, no proof of performance on the road. Do you think Oregon will be a favorite in that game?
1: We were literally just talking <laughs> about this because the betting lines come down to Oregon minus three right now. And I was just telling Steven, I was like, Do you think by the time the game kicks off, will Oregon still be favored? I don't think they will. I think, Texas, I think that line swings through zero, and by the time everybody realizes the caliber of opponent Texas Tech is, they are going to be the home favorite by the, mm. by the time that game comes Well, out.
4: the question I have is because there are questions with Will Stein. I know that he's a very smart, young offensive coordinator, but is there anything from the Portland State game that we're going to learn from the, no. offense, from the offensive coordinator? Because if not, which I don't think there is due to, I don't think you think that there is, like the first – example we're going to see is in a road environment in lubbock texas against a solid big 12 team that's your that's your debut is that performance it's going to be a tough one like that is a tough performance texas tech a really big defensive line like bigger than georgia like it's going to be a tough matchup and to have no performance proof of performance going in that game i don't know
2: i'm gonna have some questions about it they're over under texas tech is seven and a half wins i'm gonna go under i think that's a seven win team I think Oregon gets him in Lubbock. I I don't think it's easy. I think it could be a hell of a game. I'd feel better if I felt better about Tosh LePoy and the Oregon D coordinator. I don't think the questions for Oregon this season are at all on the offensive side of the ball. I think as long as you've got Bo Nix healthy, I think Oregon's got it. You guy know, offensively. It's Bucky Irving. It's it's a stable of receivers. It's tight ends. It's Bo Nix slinging the ball around the around the stadium. I just I think Will Stein. Probably not fair to Will Stein, but I think you put Stephen Vaughn in that position calling the plays, and I think Bo Nix is like, I got this. Well, I have played a lot of Madden, so. (laughs) A little question,
1: and I'll push back just slightly. Doesn't that discount how good Kenny Dillingham was?
2: I don't know if, like, I'm looking at the end of the game, and I thought, at the end of the season last year, Dillingham checked out, okay? Clearly checked out, was on his way to Arizona State, Holiday Bowl gets played, Bo Nix is calling the plays down the stretch, or at least has the approval. And the more I talked to Dillingham last year in the second half, I kind of wondered how much of the offense was Dillingham calling a play and then Bo Nix getting out to the line of scrimmage and making sure it was the right play or changing it. And I think that happened more frequently than not. And I think Dillingham was fine. I think Will Stein's fine. But I think when you give any coordinator is worth a damn a really good quarterback, they're going to look really good. And so I just I feel like offensively Oregon's going to be all right. I'm not worried about them. But I have Texas Tech to be like 5th in the Big 12, 6th, right in there with Baylor and UCF, kind of in the middle of the pack and you know, it they they're not they're not Texas. They're uh, they're not Oklahoma. They're not Kansas State. They're in that next group. Maybe maybe not even TCU. I think TCU is going to finish in front of them. But I think Tex I mean, it's a tough environment, tough to go on the road in college football. And questions about Tosh Lapoy, the defensive coordinator. I don't think he ever adjusted last season. I was really puzzled last year when Washington showed up at Autzen Stadium and threw and threw and threw the ball and never ran, and Oregon never adjusted. And then I was puzzled equally at Research Stadium in the Civil War when, when Oregon State ran and ran and ran, and uh, Oregon never adjusted. And, and it was like there were no threat to run, no threat to pass, and there was no threat to adjust. And so I need to see that. And you're not—you're right. You're not going to get it in the Portland State game. I don't even know who Texas Tech is opening with. You know, I don't uh, know, if they know are anything at, about them. At Wyoming. Yeah. Okay, so they're one and zero.
4: But at least, but at least it's a it's a test game where you have to go on the road and play a little bit.
2: They were eight and five. They were five and four in conference last season. Um, and you're right. You they're, know,
1: they're picked fourth in the Big Twelve. this they're year. They're picked fourth. Yeah, in the media pool.
2: I bet you, I don't even think they're going to get there. I think they'll be about fifth or sixth.
1: <laughs> Add Lubbock to the list of Tulsa and Tampa. I'll be in. And, I'll be in Lubbock. And all of John's favorite places <laughs> and on that Earth. Boarded
2: up old town in Texas. <laughs> you know how many? How many different trains do I need to get on to get to Lubbock, Texas? <laughs> Am I getting there on a stagecoach or an Uber when I get off the uh, airplane? You know, like, uh, <laughs> Uber, here Uber we he go. we I like that. There he goes. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. Shotgun. Get your cowboy hat ready. <laughs> get going. I'll have a cowboy hat like Coach Prime. All right, coming up, we're going to Salt Lake City. Who Who's going to play quarterback? How many games will Utah win this season? Who circled on the Utes' calendar? We'll find out. Really focused on trying to talk some football. That's the stuff that really matters. The games, the things that were supposed to be the diversion. The rest of this college football stuff is starting to feel too much like real life. If you ask me, our next guest is all over Utah football. He's the guy, Josh Newman, on the Utah beat. You can read him in read his work at KSL, among other places. Man of the world, father, husband. Beat reporter extraordinaire, joining us now, bagel expert, what else? Josh Newman, how you doing?
8: John, John, the check's in the mail, man. I really appreciate that open. <laughs> I owe you one there.
2: You're uh, you're like, you've got opinions on a lot of things. I've noticed you've been tweeting about bagels. I've seen you tweet about um, movies. You have interests that go uh, all over the place. You are truly a man of the world. Where do you get a good bagel in Salt Lake City?
8: I don't know. When you find that, let me know. <laughs> I'm serious. It's, it's, it, it's a dire situation out here, John.
2: <laughs> I love that.
8: No, I had a friend. No, seriously. I had a friend in Salt Lake City who, uh, he went to, uh, he went to New York for a couple of days and he texts me. He's like, do you want me to bring back bagels? And I'm like, look, if you have room in your luggage, can you do a dozen? And he brought me <laughs> back a dozen and it was, all my hopes and dreams realized in the first bite. Like everybody needs a friend, like my friend who brought back a dozen New York bagels.
2: G- give me an idea, because you know I go to Starbucks or I go to the place called New York Bagels and I get a bagel. Uh, what what's the difference when you're in New York or in the East Coast and you get a good bagel?
8: It's the water, and I'm I'm not going to pretend to be a chemist, but like it's the water and it's like handmade and it's like the boiling. You know, the boiling temperature, the, mm. the exact moment. I don't know how they do it, but it's funny. Like, you can't find a good bagel in Salt Lake City, but you can find pretty, pretty good pizza, which doesn't make any sense. Because bagels and pizza go together, right? It's all dough, mm. the water, mm-hmm. the flour, the kneading, and the whole thing. So, I don't know. I don't know. Whoever, whoever in Salt Lake City or even in the surrounding neighborhoods, whoever figures out, the, you know, the bagel situation, they'll have my money for all, all of eternity. I promise.
2: That's why people come to the show. Josh Newman in Salt Lake City laying down bagel news. Um, Speaking of, um, Kyle Whittingham is talking about, you know, his quarterback conundrum. Can you kind of unpack it? Like quarterback one, quarterback two, you know, where are the questions? Has Cam Rising been cleared? Like just can we lift the fog on the quarterback situation for a minute?
8: Yeah, just a brief recap in case people are not aware. Cam Rising. Uh, tore his ACL in the Rose Bowl on January 2nd. So since that, it's now been a race against the calendar, a race against the clock to see if he can get ready for the opener on August 31st. Uh, surgery was a success over the winter. He missed spring ball. He's been a limited participant in uh, fall camp, but there has been optimism. In some spots, there's been optimism that Rising could go. Behind Rising, you have three guys. You have Brandon Rose, Nate Johnson, and Bryson Barnes all vying for QB2. And not only are they vying for QB2, they are vying to become essentially the most viable option to start a game if Rising cannot go. Brandon Rose was hurt in the first scrimmage. He's going to be out a while. So now it's Bryson Barnes who, you know, if you watch the last couple of Rose Bowls, right, he came in in, uh, in relief of Rising who was hurt in each of the last two Rose Bowls. You know he's got a bit of a resume. He he's a known commodity at this point. Older guy has the trust of Kyle Whittingham, has the trust of Andy Ludwig, uh, the offensive coordinator. But he's limited in what he can do. Uh, Nate Johnson is this kind of hyper athletic four star kid who you know has has all the tools. Uh, redshirt freshman. He he started last season on the scout team. He got uh, promoted to the to the varsity roster, so to speak, and and spent the last like 75 percent of last season as QB three. So where are we now? Uh, the week started on Monday. I felt, you know, just listening to Kyle Whittingham and listening to Andy Ludwig and getting some Intel. I felt like it was a real genuine 50 50 that rising could go on August 31st as this week has kind of wore on. I'm less optimistic that rising can go. Uh, he has not been cleared yet. You know, that came from his mouth today on local radio. Okay. Rising said that he is not cleared yet. So you're looking at the calendar, it's like, well, we're playing a game in a week, and you don't have full clearance yet, and even if you've got full clearance, let's, you know, in a vacuum, okay, let's say Rising is cleared tomorrow, you still don't have many, if any, padded practice opportunities to get with the first-team offense, knock the rust off, do what you have to do. He's been practicing with the first-team offense, but he's been limited, right? Can't move laterally, can't get hit, obviously he's not going 11-on-11 team stuff, he just hasn't done it yet. So now I'm kind of working under, under the assumption, uh, cautiously, that we're out of time to get Rising ready. So then it becomes Barnes versus Johnson. Uh, Barnes had a slight lead there. Okay, Kyle Whittingham said on Monday that Nate Johnson has really taken advantage of the increased reps and the increased opportunity since Brandon Rose is out. But I think the trust. I think ultimately, I think the trust in the experience that Bryson Barnes has gives him the advantage in this battle versus Johnson. Johnson has all the upside. Johnson's electric. Johnson has a much higher ceiling than Bryson Barnes. Long-term, yeah, I'd probably go Nate Johnson, but if you're talking about one game, this opener, this game, who is going to play the quarterback, the safe, rational move to me is to go with Bryson Barnes if Rising ultimately cannot go.
2: Could could you foresee Kyle Whittingham deciding – yeah, I'm going to start Bryson Barnes, but I'm going to bring in Nate Johnson and let him play situationally.
8: Oh, 100%. I, I, would, I would put money on that. Uh, you know, you saw late last season, you know, there, there was a, a package installed for Nate Johnson. Look, Nate Johnson's first two collegiate touches were a nine-yard touchdown run against Stanford and in, uh, an eight-yard touchdown run against Stanford. following the week, they throw him in there, you know, second and something inside the red zone. His one and only collegiate pass is a 16-yard touchdown pass. So if Bryson Barnes starts, there will still be a role for Nate Johnson. He's, you know, when I say when I say he's athletic and capable, this kid ran like 10, 5, or 100 meters in the state of California, finished in the top uh, three or four last year in the state, or two years ago in the state of California, in the 100-meter dash. He, he's going to play, okay? he's too, uh, He's too capable. He's too athletic. Uh, there's too much, again, there's too much ceiling. There's too much upside. I mean, I could see, I could certainly see a situation where, like, between the 20s or between the 25s, it's Bryson Barnes. And then once you get into, like, money territory, inside the 20, inside the 10, I could see them going to Nate Johnson. One way or the other, Nate Johnson is going to play, okay? It's just a matter of will he start or will he come in in relief of Barnes in a situational capacity.
2: We're talking to Josh Newman in Salt Lake City. He's talking about Utah football. The Utes – Will host Florida next Thursday in their season opener in Week One. Will Will they be run heavy if if it is Barnes slash Johnson? Do you expect that, that the packages will be a little more conservative? Won't ball won't be in the air like it normally is?
8: That's a great question. I mean, if it was, you know, look, if it's rising, it's one thing. I do think if it's Barnes, it's another thing. Look, Andy Ludwig's uh, scheme and philosophy and what they want to do in, in a general sense that's not going to change regardless of who the quarterback is. What you're going to see, though, if it's Bryson Barnes, it's going to be a different level of play calling. Like if Rising is in there, they were calling, you know, 8, 10, 12 designed runs every game for Rising because that's his skill set. That's not what you want Barnes doing. And, no, you don't want Bryson Barnes slinging the rock, you know, 30, 35 times. That's not a recipe for success. I think, you know, I think what you're going to see is if it's Barnes, I think your play calling is going to be, You know, not vanilla, but, you know, safe, okay? Short, medium, uh, you know, take care of the ball. That's all Kyle ultimately wants from Bryson Barnes is just take care of the ball. And, look, I've said this for months, okay, on your show, on other shows, like Utah can win this opener against Florida if it's Bryson Barnes or if it's Nate Johnson, but if you're going with your backup, he needs help. Okay, your offensive line has to win up front. Your running back room led by Jaquindon Jackson has to – has to do its job. It would be really helpful if brand Keithy, who is also coming back from ACL surgery. This is like the, like the forgotten storyline this summer in the middle of this rising stuff is that brand Keithy is still not cleared off ACL surgery, like 10 and a half months ago. So if it's Barnes, it would be very helpful if brand Keithy played. Let me also say this, the times that Bryson Barnes has played during his career, you know, even with the, you know, the Washington state game last year, right. Where, uh, where rising couldn't go, Barnes won that game. Essentially, saved the season for Utah. Bryson Barnes has never played in a game where the game plan was geared towards him. Okay, the two Rose Bowls and mop-up duty during his career. Even the Washington State game last year. Yeah, there was a possibility that he was going to play. Okay, during that week, but that game plan was geared towards Rising. Even as Rising, kind of you know was a late scratch, like 45 minutes before kickoff. So, if it is Barnes, I'm very curious to see what he can do with a game plan tailored towards him. He's never had the benefit of that. Uh, So that's going to be an interesting dynamic here as the days go along. Is it going to be Barnes? And if it's Barnes, how much time does Andy Ludwig need to really install a plan centered around this particular quarterback?
2: I want to ask you about number 87, Thomas Yasmin. He came into that Pac-12 championship game and had like a 60-yard touchdown reception. And I thought, gosh, Utah's got all these tight ends. Will he be on the field if, if in fact, you know, the tight, tight end room is what we think it's going to be?
8: Yeah, he'll be on the field, you know, regardless. Uh, look, they they like to go 12 personnel, you know, 13 personnel in, in, some, in some cases, right? The 21 team that went to the Rose Bowl, you know, the first Rose Bowl team, that team went a ton of 13 personnel, not as much 13 personnel last season, especially once Keithy went down with the ACL. But, you know, assuming Keithy is healthy, you know, either for the opener or at some point, yeah, you're going to see Keith and Yasmin on the field at the same time. And Yasmin is kind of this, you know, success story, right? You know, not from this country, came over from Australia, grew up playing rugby, uh, you know, essentially turned down a pro contract to play rugby as a, as a teenager in an effort to play American football and get the American education. And it's been it's been kind of a slow burn here, you know, for Thomas Yasmin. Three years, four years, he really showed some flashes Last year, okay, caught the touchdown in the Pac-12 championship game, as you alluded to, caught a touchdown in the Rose Bowl last year against Penn State. I think a lot of things are expected out of Thomas Yasmin, and I think this is at the point where if he produces again or produces at a higher level, it's not that crazy to think that Thomas Yasmin could be a day two or a, a day three draft pick. And I think that's a testament to, you know, coaching him up and Freddie Whittingham, the tight ends coach, and what they've really been able to do with what they have at their disposal.
2: I don't want to get too in the weeds and ask this kind of question, but I'm going to ask it. The kicking game hasn't been great at Utah, and I think it goes back maybe a couple of seasons. And I know they got a transfer maybe from Colorado, but what's the kicking game look like?
8: Uh, Kicking game, you know, you were pretty PC about that, okay? I'll I'll go a little further, all right? The kicking game (laughs) is been a gong show. Gong show for most of the last two years. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, the 21, <laughs> aren't you glad you had me on John? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the 21 season specifically was a mess. Uh, you know, field goal attempts, you know, we're getting blocked, uh, punch for getting blocked and returned for touchdowns even last year. I mean, you got to the point last year late in the regular season that they weren't even trotting out their field goal unit at all. If you were like fourth and six, fourth and seven, like just inside plus territory or even in field goal range, you were just going for it because you just didn't trust your kicking game. Cole Becker can help that. You know, you look at Cole Becker's raw numbers. He's good. He's solid. Um, He was very good at Colorado for a couple of years. I think they've upgraded their place kicking game and, you know, the punting stuff with Jack Baumeister punting was solid last year. Um, You know, no, no real major flaws or major complaints about the punting unit last year. Um, And I wouldn't expect any now again, with a veteran, um, a veteran punter, inbound meester right year two in the program. Um I think, you know, I know you asked me about kicking, but you know, special teams is kind of this interesting case, right? Because you had Britton Covey, who was this short handed kick returner, punt returner for years, right? Now, you know, playing for the Eagles, right? Just played in the Super Bowl. Remember the name Micah Pittman. Okay. You should know the name Micah yeah. Pittman, right? Played yeah. for Oregon, played for Florida State. I think you're gonna see him as like the primary punt returner and that's probably going to be an upgrade over Devon Vele, who did a, you know, an admirable job last year you know, returning punts. They didn't ask a ton out of Vele, just, just catch the ball. That was the mandate for Vale. I think you're going to see a lot more out of Pittman and maybe taking some more chances, you know, allowing him to return punts. He, he's, he's very, very capable.
2: When you look at Vale in that receiver room, and you, you talk about Pittman in there, I mean, is, is that a better group this year, or is it just different?
8: Uh, That's a great question. I I don't think we know the answer to that yet. I think on paper, I think it is better. Uh, Look, this is my coming up on my fourth season covering Utah. Okay. I I started during that weirdo 2020 COVID year and each of the previous three off seasons, the wide receiver room has has always been this question mark. Like, you know, do they have the guys? Can they step up? Can belly be a number one guy? Right. That was the question going into last year. Now, look, some of that is you have, or you had, arguably the best tight end room in the country back in 2021 between Keithy and Dalton Kincaid and Cole Fotheringham. And you know, or you knew that Keithy and Kincaid were going to combine for, you know, 24, 26 targets and rising was going to continue to look for them. So part of the lack of wide receiver production is your tight ends are really good one, but also, yeah, rising should maybe spread around a little bit. If the, if the tight end thing in a particular game is not panning out. So, this particular wide receiver room certainly the best that I've seen in my four years here. Between Devon Vele, who again you know proved to you know be that capable number one guy, uh, and Money Park, who's now a veteran kid, uh, Micah Pittman, uh, Emery Simmons, who's a, a transfer from Indiana. The 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 name to remember here is uh, Mikey Matthews. Okay, Mikey Matthews is a freshman slot receiver. Really showed some things during spring ball. Okay. Kyle Whittingham gave the, you know, the loose comparison to Mikey Matthews of written Covey. All right. And he kind of started a, a fire among fans because if you're telling fans that they're getting a second version of Covey, they're going to be excited. But the point is, he's got some of the same attributes and the same attitude and the same willingness to learn. So, a um, bit of a veteran room with help from the transfer portal with Micah Pittman, with Emery Simmons. But Mikey Matthews, like, seems to be seems to be coming on seems to have the goods maybe maybe won't start in the slot because that's probably going to Pittman but Matthews will be on the 2D tomorrow when it gets released finally
2: Josh let me ask you we've talked bagels we've talked quarterbacks we've talked tight ends and kickers <laughs> i got to ask you you know this season feels weird you know the farewell season the last season whatever we're going to call this thing how is utah how does that narrative affect utah if at all I don't think it does. I,
8: I think this staff, you know, Whittingham specifically has, has done a really good job of keeping the locker room kind of like singularly focused on what's immediately in front of you. Like nobody's worried about the big 12 and nobody's worried about having to go to Baylor on September 9th. You know, the singular focus is right now and August 31st and what the possibilities are. You know, there's no, you know, there's no farewell tour, right? There's not gonna be any tears that, you know, that rising is leaving after this year. So it's, it's been a very interesting build up to now. Okay. Cause if you think about what last year was with everybody back, right. You know, you won the Rose bowl in 21 and you brought back everybody, right. You had rising and Pavion Thomas and the two tight ends and your defense was pretty stacked. And every day, every day last year for nine months was geared towards the opener at Florida. And it was palpable and it was exhausting. Okay. But now we haven't gotten that everyday thing for nine months, but it, look, people are excited, sure, but I also think there is like a little bit of trepidation among fans because you don't know what rising status is, and you don't know if he can play in the opener, and if he doesn't play in the opener, well, okay, will nine days before Baylor can he get back for Baylor? And then there's this, you know, there's, there's this other subset of fans where it's like, you know what, don't rush him back, just as long as he's ready for September 23rd against UCLA for the Pac-12 opener. That's fine. So, again, um, a lot of excitement. You know, know, people are ready to get the season going. But I I do get the vibe that, like, people don't quite know what to make of this group until they know what rising status is.
2: I cannot wait to see this game. I'll be there on that Thursday night at Rice-Eccles Stadium to write about it, cover it. I will see you in the press box, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. There he is, Josh Newman. From Salt Lake City, where you can't get a good bagel. I should bring him a bagel when I go to the press box. Steven, um, you and I disagree on this game. This spread on this game opened at Utah minus nine. It went to nine and a half. I reached out to Jay Cornegay at the Westgate Superbook yesterday, and I said, what is going on with this line? Because it went from nine and a half, suddenly down to nine, eight and a half, eight seven and a half, six, you know, it's, I don't know where it is now. I, I got a feeling it's going to end up at like three and a half. Is it at four and a half, four now? Where is the line on this game? Uh,
4: yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It, it's at five. Okay. So yeah. I mean, you know, not a, not a key number in betting, but is that five right now is going down. But the, the interesting one is the total is at 45 points. Very low total. in that one. And I just, John, if Cam rising doesn't play, I don't know how I can put confidence in Utah to be able to throw the football, and I know that Florida isn't good, and they weren't good last season, even though they beat Utah. But they still got athletes on that defensive line, and I will think I just think that the Utah's going to be a little too one sided, uh, one dimensional running the football in that game. They won't be able to put it, you know, put the ball through the air. If Rising plays, I think it's no problem. But I don't, I don't think Cam Rising's playing based off what Josh Newman was saying there. It, to me, it didn't sound like there was a lot sounds of confidence. sounds like he's not.
2: But isn't Florida like a five and a half win team? Like, they are, yeah. That's yeah, yeah, mediocre.
4: But like, histo- but, but historically, Florida's usually like an eight and a half team. So, is it just one of those things where we're over? We're you know we're taking too much value of what happened last season.
2: Maybe end of the year, I can't get it out of my head with that, how that they looked at yeah, The too. Vegas Bowl, and they were just inept against Oregon State in the Be- Vegas Bowl. But um, I look, I I think he made a good point about. You know, Bryson Barnes, if he is the starter, here's Andy Ludwig. You've got a game plan for him. This isn't 10 minutes before kickoff like when they were playing Washington State on that Thursday night. Um, you know, it'll be interesting. I think it's a tremendously compelling Week 1 game uh, in the Pac-12 lineup. And I will be there. The show will be there. I'll be live from Rice-Eccles Stadium in the run-up to kickoff uh, next Thursday, a week from today. And and then we'll be on to uh, the Bay Area to see Oregon State play at San Jose State. So uh, we'll have all the coverage right here on the show, and I'll have uh, all the game columns and writing from the road at johnconzano.com. Along with photo galleries, got five or six photographers on the road in week one at various stadiums, including Autzen Stadium. Got a photographer in San Jose to shoot the uh, Oregon State game. Got a photographer that it will be at Rice-Eccles Stadium to shoot the Utah game. So Going to have a lot of live action and galleries. If you want any of that, grab a free subscription right now at johnconzano.com. Coming up, John Papadakis, the crooner and former USC linebacker. Our next guest, superstar, man of the world, true renaissance man. When we're talking about the the ability to... uh, to uh, sing or tackle you or open a restaurant or just hold a good conversation. Uh, John Papadakis was a defensive standout for USC. The singing linebacker went on to become a uh, booster and a restaurant owner and, of course, the father to Petros Papadakis, uh, who uh, you can catch on FS1 this college football season. But John Papadakis joining us now. How are you, sir?
9: I'm good. Thank you.
2: How was my intro? Was I Did I do okay?
9: <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. You can throw in there Civic Planner, too.
2: Civic Planner. I love that. Yeah. Hey, give me an idea. you you got a concert coming up.
9: Oh, yeah. Said, I've got a yeah tell me about it. Well, people say, you know, they say, well, you sound uh, a lot like Tony Bennett. And I tell them, gee, does he sound like me? So, <laughs> <laughs> You know no. I've always loved his music. I remember just as a kid putting my ear to the, the hi fi set and and listening. I would even listen to his stuff before games, you know because uh of the depth of his voice and his ability to soar with it. I mean really hit the heights and express you know real clear feelings at the same time, not screaming, singing. I love and that i'm I was crazy about you know, his his ability to to portray the feelings that the writer of the music intended. And it seems as if he gives that kind of portrayal every time he really interprets a song. So I've always loved his music and I find that of the three albums I've done so far, two thirds of the songs were really, you know, originally re- recorded by Tony Bennett or he had a great version of them, you know, and they're moving to me, so music's always moved me. And I and I think that uh, applying myself to it's gonna bring out the best in my my abilities.
2: You're playing football at USC in the nineteen seventies, Sam Bam Cunningham on your team, just great history, great time, wonderful stories that you've shared with us over the years. But what was that experience like for you and did you know at that time that you had a love of music or was that something that you know did you always think well maybe music, someday i could do that
9: music is how we communicated with each other you know every kid had a uh <laughs> i remember i had an all-american roommate we met at the shrine game we ended up being captains of our shrine team you know that was the best players from southern california against the best players from northern california it was played in the coliseum it attracted no less than sixty, seventy thousand people, and it was played normally mm. in July. And it, being it, it was played in July, it was the first football game of of a new season, so to speak. And then, of course, we'd have a we'd have a two-week camp there. And uh, John and I liked each other. We were um, roomed together, and we liked each other. And and then uh, they just uh, signed us the same um, situation at USC. John came in the room and he put up a picture of his girlfriend, high school girlfriend. And I objected to it. I said, <laughs> I said, John, I had just, set, and, uh, you know, I had just set up my record player. Now you use the record player to, you know, draw attention, right? And I'd put it between our beds, etc. It was a Sylvania record player and plays those long playing albums. So John sets up the picture of his girlfriend. I said, I don't, I don't want to look at her every day. You know, keep in mind, these rooms are pretty small. And he said, well, I'm sorry. You're going to have to look at her. So I took the picture and threw it out the window. Well, <laughs> John was 6'5", 260. You know? <laughs> he practically picked me up and threw me out the window. But instead, he threw my record player. <laughs> no. So he couldn't have hurt me anymore. Because that's how we all communicated through music. You know, when guys came over the um, your room or later when you'd have an apartment or something, first thing you did was, you know, play the new record you just got and the new song that's playing, and the new hit from, you know, this source or that source. And so I think everyone on the team had their favorite recording artist. And, and uh, I, I can remember so many of the teammates just by the music they sang.
2: Give me an idea. and Again, we're talking to former USC linebacker John Papadakis. Played there in the 70s. Son, Petros, went to USC as well. And, you know, you've got a long history with the Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12. What do you make of what's happening in college football?
9: Well,
0: they all call it
9: a a financial reality, right? That's what they're – but it's only because they are – Um, kowtowing to it, so to speak. They're worshiping it. They're bowing down to it. They're saying, nobody's going to get ahead of me money-wise. Well, when you pursue something, you know, on one end, you lose something on the other. And they're going to be counting up their losses here as they proceed. They're going forward for the money, right? They're diving into it you know, get out of that place and go to this other place. And they don't understand the hardships involved. And they're they're naturally going to be the hardships involved. So it's just a matter of time for them to discover this. Big Ten football is different. You know, every team has, has to be, they play a physical brand of football, and um, especially in the middle-tier um, schools there. Most of them run the ball well. USC has not done well against the run and teams that can control the field and keep you in the middle of it. Look at, look at the Oregon State game last year. Oregon State was dedicated to, what, three tight ends, right, Dedicating to dedicated to running the ball and defensively kept the USC. On their toes and in the middle of the field. SC had to punt the ball, <laughs> which they weren't used to doing. So uh, this is what they're going to run into. There's a lot of Oregon State types in the, um, in the Big Ten, wouldn't you agree?
2: Oh, yeah. I think that style I mean, of if, play. If,
9: yeah. if you let your dauber down against Wisconsin, they will break every bone in your body. That's how they play football. Of course, if you get to jump on them, you know you can have a two or three or four touchdown victory. Which is what a lot of the West Coast schools want to do you know i, I it 's too bad because the West Coast had its own identity, and now it's going to become part of something else, and it 's not going to be able to assert that identity it 's going to be more reactive it 's going to have to be more reactive to the to the new reality that they 've chosen only based on. It's only based on money, if if I'm correct, isn't it? It's not quality, it's money.
2: Yeah, and I think you could even argue this season that, you know, if you look at the top five teams in the Pac-12, they're all, you know, maybe top six. The top six in the Pac-12 might be better. I think they are better than the top six in the Big Ten, even though Ohio State and Michigan are one and two in that conversation. I think the Pac-12's got some really good teams, some good quarterbacks. Uh, We're talking to John Papadakis, former USC linebacker. You uh, you owned a restaurant after your playing career, and it became a gathering spot for coaches and and uh, assistant coaches, and boosters, and fans, and sometimes players. What was that like to have rest, Pete in
9: that Pete Carroll era? The restaurant shot me into the uh, atmosphere. I opened it in '73. I was 23 years old, and within months, I had movie stars coming in, and directors, famous producers. Uh, I It was all all the old guard of Hollywood, my generation. And uh, word got around, and the place was uh, hard to get into. Well, I was successful enough in my early 30s that I wanted to share that success with the USC football team, and that was John Robinson's first tenure there. And I started having the team down once a year for dinner just to show them that there's life after football and give them a great night out. And, you know, share my love and pride for being a Trojan, right? And the kids would love it, and the coaches would love it, and I got to know every coach. And, and of course, Petro was just a little kid then washing dishes or being a busboy. Over the years, and that lasted about 20, 25 years, comes to when Pete Carroll comes in, Ed Orgeron tells him, listen, that's where you should recruit. Ed Orgeron is his only assistant that was carried over from the Paul Hackett staff into the Pete Carroll staff and he tells Pete he says he's head of recruiting by the way and he says you've got to recruit there he said you've got to go down and meet John Papadakis so Pete came down and he asked me what he what I thought he should do and I said what the hell are you talking about I'm sitting here singing and dancing for my living I don't know what the hell to tell you And he said no i he said please tell me what would you do I said you possess the ball you possess the ball you just keep the ball. I said, and you deny the line of scrimmage. You prevent them making first downs. I said, your offense, the first downs your offense makes in the first half will turn in touchdowns in the second half. You, If, they, if the other team can't score, they can't win. So he was a defensive coach. That made a lot of sense to him. His first great recruit that he created his um, defense with was Sean Cody the guy that played the three technique over the nose. And sometime. when we have time, I'll tell you the recruiting story of Sean Cody, but he started to have them. We started to have the most glorious recruiting uh, sessions that you've ever seen. They were nothing short of uh, the Ben, the chariot race in Ben Hur. They were written about, <laughs> they, they were written about in the Denver post and in the, um, New York Times, you know, but not not in Western, not in the West Coast papers. I think USC didn't want to emphasize that. <laughs> Nothing illegal was going on. It was all, you know, above board and simply a, a great night out and and we sh- uh, glorious evenings. And of course, he never missed Reggie Bush. He committed there. Matt Leinart committed there. Who um, was the kid White? Lindale White committed there, Yeah, Cody, Mike Patterson, all they're all Americans, Brian Cushing, you know, it it was a great era for the me and the restaurant, and it was a culmination of having the team there for 20 years, you know, and Pete and I ended up being close friends, and we, uh, I was uh, with him most of the time, you know, and especially in games like Notre Dame and national championship games and things like that, and uh, it was uh, it was a good relationship and something that I felt very re- rewarded with. Uh, he was very inclusive and let me say this about Pete Carroll, he was extremely resourceful. He identified me as being someone that could make a difference for his program and and I was grateful for the that recognition. You know, just to for someone to smell your blood feels good when you're an old football player. Believe me.
2: John Papadakis with us, former USC linebacker, um, and he's got a concert. When's your concert? Is it September?
9: September twenty first at the Catalina Jazz Club in Hollywood. Oh, I love that. It's a Thursday night, and um, ticket sales sales are going very well. You can you can get tickets by calling the club, the Catalina Jazz Club in Hollywood, or you can go to my Instagram, which is the Singing Linebacker. <laughs> Go in there now, the singing, linebacker. A singing linebacker. and, and uh, there's, a, uh, there's a box there that'll get you, get you going.
2: Let me ask you this. You know, Reggie Bush is a little bit of a polarizing figure in that USC community. He, he wants his Heisman back. Um, name, image, likeness rules today. Most of what he did would have just been an NIL deal. Um, should Reggie have the Heisman?
9: Well, he's he's suing, right? He's suing someone. Yeah, he's
2: suing, saying he was defamed by the NCAA, but I think he really just wants his records restored and he wants the trophy back.
9: Well, you know, I recruited the guy, and I remember serving him and his mother and father. Well, it's it's his stepfather. And um, I think he made some mistakes. I think that if he apologized and he could clear it up more easily by, you know, and I think get public support if he took a broader approach to the whole thing. Um, I'm not in in this, what do you call litigious age? You know, suing someone is like uh, exercising a sacred moral right. I, I don't go for it that much. I'm with you. John Papadakis. Uh, yep. All I can all I can say is that you know it's uh, it's unfortunate. Just I think that he's taken that path. But I believe, if, regarding your direct question, yeah, I think he believe deserves his Heisman. You know, I'm not I'm not with the Heisman Trust. I, uh, as much as ownership as we have as citizens of that whole concept of that award, uh, he deserves it as much as anybody else. Um, but, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, I think that he's made some, um, maybe some decisions that he could have thought out a little better. And that goes, love, all, yeah. that goes all the way back to the original problem. You know, I got kind of caught up in it, so to speak, because those oncoming problems, uh, at the end of Pete Carroll's tenure, Uh, reflected on everyone that was involved with the program. So everyone was um, suspected of this or that. And uh, that was really the only tarnish that existed. You know, Uh, Pete, Pete operated a clean house, but I think the Reggie Bush problem was out of his control. I think like anyone else, they tried to hopefully it didn't come out, but it ended up coming out.
2: John Papadakis, before I let you go, uh, you got your kid, Petros, on TV, on Fox, FS1, calling football games. Uh, You got to be incredibly proud of him.
9: Yeah, I think he must have set a record last year, calling games, simply because he was so efficient doing it from a studio that he would do two and three, two sometimes a day and two and three a weekend, you know, uh, because of his ability to interpret the game, even though he wasn't there, he could Make everyone feel like he was there, and so (laughs) he ended up. You know, I think he probably set a record for Fox calling college football games last year. And yeah, I'm proud of him. I've always loved the way he interprets and analyzes the game, and gets you living inside, you know, it so to speak for the time that he's uh, he's got you watching. Hey, you know, a thought occurred to me. Yeah. That when you introduced me and. Growing out of your introduction, I realized that singing is another way to tackle somebody. You capture them, <laughs> because that's what I'm doing. You know, I can't physically tackle them anymore, but if you can, if you can grab a hold of them when you're singing, you won't let go of them, right? I love that.
2: And you know what? Thank you. You sent me a CD. still—it's in my car. It's in the CD player, and so you know, when we turn that on, my kids want to hear. To put on the guy who sings like uh, Frank Sinatra, and I—that's yeah. John Papadakis.
9: It's, it's engaging, you know. I think people listen more for what you mean and what the lyric means to you, and they imagine your feelings, the singer's feelings, you know, and and then they compare it to their own and their own life experiences and things. Obviously, love songs are wonderful to sing because we all are born of love and need love, so. uh Like I said, it's another way of tackling. (laughs) You want to sing a couple bars for us? Give people a preview (laughs) of. Well, no. I'll just say goodbye. (laughs) John Patrick is. Thank you. If if, if you don't watch out, I'll sing the whole Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Why Why don't you sing us
2: to commercial break and we'll fade it out? Okay. Here we go.
9: I walk. Along the street of sorrow. <laughs> I'll see you later, Dad.
2: Alright, thanks, John. There he goes. John Papadakis. Leave it here. Mountain West Conference Commissioner Gloria Navares has uh, made an in-person presentation to Washington State. Uh, Yahoo Sports reporting that Navarez made the trip to Pullman. Uh, I had previously reported that she had not appeared in person uh, as of yesterday. It appears that Today, she did make that appearance in Pullman. So, Gloria is the Mountain West Conference Commissioner, um, delivering an expansion presentation. And we'll we'll make the presentation to Oregon State as well. It is uh, a serious step towards uh, the Mountain West Conference trying to uh, court the Pac-12's surviving two or four schools. Uh, The AAC, the American Athletic Conference, Commissioner Michael Resco will also present virtually in separate meetings with Washington State and Oregon State. Each commissioner will detail the strengths of their leagues. No decisions or commitments are expected. Uh, Everybody's still waiting for Stanford and Cal figure out what goes on with the ACC. But Oregon State and Washington State, as I reported yesterday, creating a parallel path and a way to... Uh, get themselves some footing in the event that they have to resort to footing without Stanford and Cal. So, um, by the way, the group of five is guaranteed at least one automatic qualifying spot in the playoff. So um, the two additions are basically uh, the AA, the AAC and the Mountain West Conference, looking at Washington State and Oregon State as schools that could come in and help bolster that that opportunity. Um By the way, um, you've got got some real questions about the assets that are remaining in the PAC-12 conference, included among them an emergency fund that could have somewhere north of $30 million in it. I spent some time this morning, so you don't have to. I read for 45 minutes the bylaws of the PAC-12 conference. Just went back through them, line by line, went through all of the membership stuff. There are some murky... Elements that sort of leave it up in the air as to what would happen in certain scenarios. But I left with a pretty good feeling that what I think we're going to see happen with Oregon State and Washington State, regardless if Stanford or Cal are part of the equation, I think Oregon State and Washington State are very likely to try to make um, the the PAC 12 in name, if in name only, the entity that they end up, the umbrella they end up playing under. So whether that is the Mountain West Conference, or some of the Mountain West Conference members moving over and assuming the Pac-12 name, or some blend of the American Athletic Conference and the Mountain West Conference moving over together to assume um, the name. I think that uh, I think we're going to see the Pac-12 have a puncher's chance to exist beyond. 2024 in some form or fashion like it may include san diego state or boise state or fresno state or smu or some others it could have stanford and cal in there it might not have stanford and cal in there i think all of that is to be determined i was told by a source at oregon state slash washington state that they will fight to the bloody end to preserve the pac-12 conference and i think we're seeing some of that fight here uh, present itself in the coming days so keep an eye on that yahoo sports reporting that Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West Conference Commissioner, going to present to Oregon State shortly, likely presented already today to Washington State. Uh, these are serious conversations, of course. And, you know, if you're Oregon State and Washington State, you're trying to make sure that you not only have a path with Stanford and Cal, that, but you also have a path without them if it comes to that. Um, I was also told that they expect resolution on that front, in front of when Week 1 games kick off. Now, Week 1 games officially will kick off next Thursday, but uh, Oregon State does not play till Sunday. Washington State plays on Saturday. But I'm told before these games kick off that these schools want resolution. I actually think they kind of want it before the end of the week. So I'd be curious to see what happens with Stanford and Cal in the next 24 hours. And I will have you covered on that front. Anna's popping into the studio. She's got the 5 at 5. On tomorrow's show, we've got Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach. And we've got DJ Uyangalele, the quarterback, starting quarterback at Oregon State. All of that tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m. Leave it here. Well, kids are tiptoeing towards school. For most kids, school starts. Anna's in the studio. Anna, school is starting next week.
10: Yeah, Tuesday.
2: Next Tuesday?
10: Yeah. That came fast. It feels like it came fast. Does it feel like that to you?
2: I'm going to extend my summer. I'm going to go a couple few more weeks. Okay. Stephen, is your are your kids back in school or just about to be?
4: Uh, no, the kids are not. The wife has been. Uh, she's been teaching, like doing stuff all this week, and uh, you know the kids coming up after Labor Day, so
10: we're we're getting ready. Mm. Oh, so your kids are on the normal schedule. That's when everybody used to start is after Labor Day.
4: At least that's right, I Ari- yeah, right yeah, think. I don't know for
0: sure.
2: Kids Probably in check. Arizona and California started a while ago, like a month ago. I
10: know. How What's how wrong with happen? them?
2: Don't they know it's summertime? Um, Anna's going to do the five at five. But before we do that, Stephen, I'm going to give away. Do I have two pairs of Mariners tickets to give away?
4: Uh, you have two pairs of tickets, but it's to the same person.
2: Two pairs of tickets to two different games to one person. If you were listening to my interview with John Papadakis, the singing linebacker, or to my interview with Josh Newman, who talked about Utah football and other things, I want you to call in right now at 503-417-7575. I'm going to ask a question about one of those two interviews. And if you get it right, you get both pairs of tickets to go see the Seattle Mariners Playoff-bound Mariners? Play baseball games, plural. You get to go to two games, two tickets, 503-417-7575 is the number. Line up now. I'm going to just ask a very simple and direct question as it pertains to those interviews. And if you can get it right, then you're going and you're getting the tickets. Membership has its privileges is what I'm saying. For those of you who listen and pay attention, you will be uh, uniquely qualified. And I'm going to go right to the phone lines right now to Bob, and him, who is in Milwaukee, who has called in. Bob in Milwaukee, you're going to have first crack doing, at this. Uh, were you listening to the interviews?
9: Listening to the Utah interview.
2: Okay. All right. Were you listening to uh, John Papadakis, the singing linebacker? No. Okay, you're still going to get a chance to uh, to guess, maybe. He named a number of USC athletes who committed to USC as players in his restaurant. Name one of those players who committed to be a USC football player while sitting in John Papadakis' Greek restaurant.
9: You know, I think I must have came in
4: late. I don't know. I'm not going to even try. Mm. <laughs>
2: No guess. All right. I appreciate you listening though. Bob in Milwaukee. Let's go to uh let's go to uh what line is next? Who should I go to next, Stephen? What well, line 2. That makes sense. Chris is in Portland. Chris, were you listening yeah. to the John Papadakis interview? I was. Okay. Were you listening to the Josh Newman interview with Utah football?
6: I was, but I like the previous question.
2: <laughs> I bet you could answer the other one. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one on Utah football. When I started that interview, Josh Newman and I were talking about a specific food item that his friend brought back to him in Salt Lake City. What is that food item?
6: That is a bagel.
2: <laughs> you are a careful listener, and you are rewarded because of it, and you're going to two Mariners games. Now, who are you taking with you?
4: Good question. I don't know. I'll have to figure that one out. I imagine i imagined, uh, probably take a buddy.
2: Good for you. It's the only question you don't need an answer for right now. So I appreciate you. I'm going to put you on hold. Thank you to everybody who's called in. People are holding. I wish we could give tickets to everybody. Maybe by uh, years and years and years of doing this, we will be able to give tickets to everybody. But uh, good job by Chris, and thank you to everybody else who had called in who is now very disappointed that they didn't win the tickets. Next time. And I appreciate uh, everybody who listens to the show. Let's do the 5 at 5. Anna's all ready.
1: The 5 at 5.
10: All right. The kiss. The World Cup kiss is not ending well for that head of soccer in Spain. Luis Rubiales plans to resign tomorrow. There it is. Resignation. For his role. As head of the Spanish Soccer Federation, stemming from this unwanted kiss planted on midfielder Jenny Hermosa after Spain's 1-0 win over England in the World Cup final.
2: That kiss got him. Yep. What was the final straw? Well, he... Do you think he was really just jubilant and he just did something really stupid or do you I think he's, he's a creeper?
10: I don't know what's in his mind. I don't know. I don't know. I need to know more about who he is and his history. But apparently FIFA said they've opened disciplinary proceedings against him. The uh, international governing body says he might have violated rules dictating offensive behavior hmm. and violations of principles of fair play. Interesting. So.
2: what What's the penalty for that? <clears throat> He's resigning.
10: I don't know. I think he's not going to find out because he's just resigning.
2: He's taken off. You know, I watched some other video of him <clears throat> with other people on the podium, up on the stage.
10: Well, apparently he also did some other stuff.
2: Yeah. He was active. He was very... Um, <laughs> he was affectionate. He, yeah, uh, I saw him give a, a, another individual, a male, a kiss on the cheek. Okay. He was very huggy. Yeah. So I don't know if he had been drinking. <clears throat> I don't know if he's a creeper. I don't know if it's some combination of that
10: he was photographed carrying a player over his shoulder
2: yeah he did some weird things
10: he grabbed his crotch yeah 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 that's documented well that's normal though <laughs> i mean Wait, just are... had, he just had had like a michael jackson moment he's
2: giving people shoulder rides around the stadium <laughs>
10: just, i don't know what to make of it so we'll learn more i'm sure in the days and weeks ahead
2: there's your number one story number two <laughs>
10: Uh, Shohei Otani. Oh. Oh. All right. Uh, UCL tear left that game, obviously, with something wrong. The ulnar collateral ligament. Yeah, that thing. He's not going to be pitching for the rest of the season. What a bummer. This is right before free agency. Uh, But apparently he's going to keep hitting. In fact, uh, even after he left that game, he was the team's designated hitter. And he will continue to do so in an upcoming series against the Mets. I don't know what his doctors are saying about him continuing to hit as well, but maybe it's not the kind of injury that, I don't, I don't know. Yeah,
2: you can't pitch. You, you, you clearly can't pitch. He lost so much velocity with that surgery and, and, and that injury, and he, may, he will need surgery, and he may not be the same as a pitcher. You know, you've, I've seen people come back from that and be okay. I've seen people come back and struggle. He lost about four miles an hour on his fastball, so he lost velocity that he, he just he can't get back. But he also... You know what I was impressed with? I was looking last night for video of him, like yeah. when did it happen, whatever, right. and they showed him after the injury, and he was just kind of smiling <laughs> and being like a like he was in a jovial mood. And, you know, he's just... I, I think he's a very even-keeled person.
10: It's interesting to me that... He's been in the lineup, but he's been doing platelet-rich plasma and stem cell therapy. That's the same stuff you got on yeah, your knees. reflex. So he's been treating a sprain. Um, it, you know, that was back in 2018, and then he had Tommy John surgery, so he's recovered from that. Uh, I think he'll but, be
2: okay, but this this could cost him some money, but he's such a good hitter. I don't know if it will cost him some money in free agency. You, you know, think some are saying, still bet on him? yeah, some people are saying, well, what is he worth now? $550 million? Like, it's just, he's such a good player that I think you would bet on his ability to come back and know that, you know, your insurance policy, and that's, I guess, that's the benefit of having a guy that can pitch and hit and be your, he can be your cleanup hitter and he can be your ace pitcher, is if this is a injury that makes him a marginal pitcher when he comes back from it, then. You still know you got a hell of a hitter in the deal so it's i i think it's not a big as big a risk of course as it would be if he were just a pitcher with this injury number three story
10: so what is john lynch saying in an interview today about trey lance on one hand he's saying we're very happy with trey the most likely option is that he's here
5: you know as i said we're very happy with trey um that's probably the most likely option is that he's here. Um, if we could find a landing spot for Trey that is, is uh, you know, is a really good one for him and, you know, works for our organization, that's not something we we turn a blind eye to. But that's not where our focus is right now. Um, you know, I think uh, our focus is on Trey getting back here and us being the best football team. We're getting close to Pittsburgh, and um, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, there's there's – viable options for all players but right now trade's a part of our team and we're going to move forward with that in mind
2: all right this is this is an organization that knows it wants to trade him
10: so he wants to keep the value of this trade high
2: they're they're creating leverage hey we don't you know we're not going to give him away you know we want to find a situation for him you know maybe we'll just keep him you know and so if there's a team out there that likes but not, you know, I don't think you're going to find a team that loves Trey Lance, given that he doesn't have proof of performance. But there might be a team that likes him, that doesn't have a backup, that's look going, hey, you know what, I would bet on that. You know, I mean, but what the Niners don't want to do is they don't want to cut him. They don't want to release him and just let some team have him. So they would like to get something out of the deal, a draft pick. Something. Maybe this
10: is the sort of thing we need to hear from the Blazers. Maybe Jody Allen can say that about Damian Lillard.
4: There there were some reports that the Minnesota Vikings were interested uh, in Trey Lance, but John Lynch shut that down in the interview, said that never happened. But, of course, never know. You can never believe these guys. So maybe the Vikings are one of those teams.
2: I got to be honest, where my mind went first was Seattle. Because I went, you know what? It'd be just like Pete Carroll and the Seahawks to take him and be like, we'll just stash him over here. And three years from now, he's their starter. Just saying, just throwing that out there. But I think they're they're trying to create some some false leverage. Most GMs will see through it. But he's basically saying, "Hey, the best option for him is to be right here." No, it's not. We all know it's not. But you're right about Damian Lillard and the Blazers. Joe Cronin should be saying that too. Hey, you know what? We we're going to be really good with Damian Lillard next year. If we if we uh, if we have to start the season with him, we're not going to complain.
10: Wouldn't that be the ideal thing for the Blazers to say? Yeah, right, now. Except Damian. Three weeks ago. Yeah,
2: except Damian Lillard won't talk about it. You know, he did an interview. He's asked about the final straw to request a trade.
3: I'm not going. I'm not going to speak on the Blazers. It's a lot of a lot of love and respect, but I don't. You know, I won't speak on the Blazers. It's well documented that there have been a trade request um, is to the Miami Heat. Is there anything that you could say about the, the trade request? I can say that there, there was, and I would just prefer not to speak on the Trailblazers.
10: Okay, so that's Damian talking to Mark Spears. That's number four in the Five at Five. I found it interesting because I had to know. I was like, that that was initially the only clip that I saw, and I was like, there has to be more to this interview. And it's part of a longer four-minute, essentially promotional piece for the basketball camp that Damian Lillard is running currently in Phoenix, where he gets college players from around the country, mid-majors, and has them play and gets them some, you know, um, time before coaches. Like, he's doing a good thing there, and it was all very positive, and then there's this portion of the interview where he won't talk about the place
2: well you know how that goes it's mark spears who's got a relationship with damian lillard because yeah. mark spears grew up in the bay area lillard grew up in the bay area spears covers the nba lillard's been in the nba spears is close with Aaron Goodman, uh lillard's agent and so you know how that goes is yeah, spears yeah. is going hey i'll do the interview but i need to ask you about the elephant in the room and to his credit he asked him and he does a follow-up question but you know it's 29 seconds of the stuff we want to hear in three and a half minutes of the stuff nobody cares about. You know, and I, I, so I still think I still think it wouldn't hurt Damian Lillard to go like, hey, Blazer fans. No, they've been there with me. I'm they've they've in, endured the same stuff I've endured. They have the same frustrations I have. You know, I, I've had enough.
10: I saw somewhere that he could be fined theoretically by the NBA if he said too much. Is that true?
2: Yeah, the NBA would fine him if he crossed the line from uh, you know ask, requesting a trade internally to, to uh, you know, Adam Silver sent out that letter saying, basically, we're not going to let you let players manipulate the market for themselves while they're under contract. He's not an unrestricted free agent. He's under contract. Mm-hmm. It's a violation of his contract to, you know, speak in a way that damages the league and damages his organization. And so maybe he's towing that line a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I just, I think he would get a lot of empathy if he just said, hey, Blazer fans, you know, (laughs)
10: like
2: you've been here.
10: Yeah.
2: I'm trying, and... You know the organization's yeah. not moving in the same direction and on my timeline. Yeah,
4: I was right. going to ask Anna that because Anna's a Blazer fan. Like I understand, I think John understands. Would do you understand as a Blazer fan? Like if Dane came out and said that, you, you'd feel one hundred
10: percent. I would be like, y- yes, that's w- that's what I've been saying for several days now. Is like we get it, dude. Like I know there's the contract part, and I know there's a lot of people that get heated about the fact that hey, you took the money, so stop whining about wanting to go somewhere else, but. Any reasonable person who's been following the Blazers and has any fandom in them for the team has seen his contribution to the team and the loyalty that he's shown and it's like man if they're not gonna build around him let him go chase at least a decent playoff run somewhere else maybe not a championship but at least go let him let him go play among you know a team that is going to go somewhere.
2: I'm not one of these people that looks at players in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, and and says, shut up and play if you're under contract. If you're not happy, it's okay to say you're not happy. And, And there's a variety of reasons that go into that. Sometimes there's health issues, and they don't like the team doctor or the team trainers. I think players should speak more openly about what's really going on inside the organization. And it's why there's some of this murkiness to the Lillard thing. Was he promised something? Did they tell him they were going to make a move and not make a move? Did they tell him, you know, did they try to trade him for a year and they had good deals on the table, something that would send him to Miami and they didn't do it? Like, I don't know, and we don't know right. the backstory, And so I I would just like him to not shut up. Like, it's not a shut up and play thing. It's a speak out. Like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Mm-hmm. Talk to us. Because I'm on record. I've written that, look, if Phil Al- if Phil Knight owned the team and not Paul Allen, Okay, Phil Knight owned the team. This would not be happening. Damian Lillard would be happy. Yeah, the Blazers would be going for it. You know, they'd be trying to win. If if um, if you had uh, a situation where Damian Lillard knew that Phil Knight was going to buy the team, would that change his mind? Would ownership change his mind? I have so many questions that I'd like to ask him. Like, hey, is this an ownership thing, or is it just? You've had enough and you want to see something else?
10: Isn't the more reasonable thing here that there were promises made to him that didn't, that didn't happen?
2: I don't know that we can make that leap. I want to. Do we know there we- was
4: promises that were made?
10: No, no, I'm just saying, from a logical standpoint, he wouldn't put himself into this position, I think. Like, I would think that the people around him, even, his team wouldn't put him in this position publicly if
2: there's something else going on if there
10: weren't backs against the wall like you just this is not an outcome that you would ever want for team lillard
2: i don't know and he's not talking he doesn't want to talk about it i wish he would because i think i think he'd get 85 percent of the fans i think would slide over to his side and go, totally. Yes. Get it. Yes. Yes. But I think right now, if he continues this, I think he runs a real risk that he's going to alienate fans. Which
10: is such a shame that that would be the tarnish, you know, on his time here and the energy that he's put into the team and, frankly, the investment that the team has made in him.
2: Number five.
10: I don't know if this is on a lighter note, but it does involve comedian Kevin Hart. For reasons unbeknownst to just about anybody, he decided to challenge former Patriots running back Stephen Ridley to a race in a 40-yard dash. Now, Kevin Hart is 44 years old. Riley is 34 years old. This didn't end well. It ended with Kevin Hart in a wheelchair.
0: Here's the, here's the audio of it. Yep. Well, you know it's going to be bad. Anytime somebody starts off by saying, well... Is bad. Ladies and gentlemen, the age 40 is real. To all my men, women out there that are 40 years old and above, uh, it's not a game. Respect that age. Respect that age. Or that age will will make you respect it. I was just forced to respect it. Um, This is just a public service announcement because I know people may see me out and uh, I don't want you to be alarmed, but I'm in a wheelchair. Yeah. I'm in a (laughs) wheelchair. Why? Well, because I tried to jump out there and do some young stuff. <laughs> Try to go out there and do some young, uh, some young man stuff, and I was told to sit my ass down. Shouts out to Stephen Wiley. I'm going to go to put this story out there before you do. Me and Stephen, we got into a little debate. This debate was based off of who was faster. Those that know me know I'm pretty fast. Stephen said, Kev, ain't no way you're going to beat me. Stephen is an ex-NFL uh, running back, played for the New England Patriots. Very good guy. I said, Steve, you can bet it. He said, bet, I said, bet. We get out there, we go run the 40-year-old dash. 40-yard dash. Guys, I blew all my shit. Tore my lower abdomen, uh, my abductors. Are torn. I don't even know what that is, but I tore them. I tore those two. I can't walk. Sit my ass down. This is 44. Tell you what, you just lost, son. You just lost every opportunity of me going to racing you anytime soon. It's over. <laughs> Kenneth, it's over. Sit down. What are we competing for at this age? Why are we, like, what, are, what am I doing? <laughs> Why did I even race? Stupid as ever. Now I can't walk because I'm somewhere trying to get the title of the fastest at the barbecue. What was I thinking, son? God, got to be the stupidest man alive. It is what it is, man. This is life. Uh, You know, I'm out. I got about six to eight. I blew my <laughs> well. Wow. Kevin Hart's funny.
10: He's hilarious. He wanted to be
2: the fastest guy at the barbecue.
10: Uh-huh. Yeah. Can't we all relate to that, though? Yes,
2: totally. Like, we've done
10: something because in your mind, you're way younger than what you actually are, and then you realize... Maybe it's not as sudden. Maybe, like, for me, it's usually 24 to 48 hours later, I'm like, ooh, that was a bad idea.
2: I I raced the kids this summer. Yeah. And uh, I was running full speed Uh against the 7-year-old and the 9-year-old. Yeah. And I got about... 15 yards into it (laughs) and mentally you know i ran well as a division two college baseball player i was the fastest guy on my team
10: yeah
2: i uh realized decades and decades later that it had been a while (laughs) since i full bore ran like a 40 and i got about 12 yards into this thing and i went i better ease up I, i frankly relate to what kevin hart was saying there Uh, It was going to be torn lower abductors or whatever he, (laughs) He whatever he did. The abductor. Yeah. The adductor. The abductor, adductor. Um, And that only reminds me of the other time. The only other time was the now 20-year-old. She was like 12. And I was recovering from knee surgery. And I had her videotape me run a 40. Because I wanted to see how I looked. I wanted to see if I was limping. Yeah. Just want to see, like, if I try to run three-quarter speed, full speed, How do I look? Yeah. Do I look like a fool? Yeah. And so she had my iPhone Uh and she said, go. Yeah. We were out at the high school football field and I ran. And then I got to her and I got the phone and nothing was said. There were no words said. And then I watched the video as we're walking back to the car. Yeah. And about 20 yards into my run, she starts laughing. Oh, jeez. And the camera's bouncing up and down because she's laughing so hard. And I, <laughs> I took that as, I just, I just I deleted the video. Yeah. I was like, nope, don't need to see the destroy rest. Destroy the evidence. Just destroy it. Yeah. She's laughing at her dad because she's never seen her dad actually try to run fast. Ugh. Fastest guy at the barbecue. Yeah.
10: I'll tell you
2: this. I think I'm the fastest person on this radio show. Steven and Judah.
10: Hmm. Smoke them. Hey, what about me?
2: Oh, come on. I'll outrun you.
10: Steven? Judas shaking his head.
2: No,
4: I don't know. I played basketball the other day. I'm still sore from it, and it was like a week ago. So I think you could beat me in a race. I could beat you in basketball, but race you might
10: give
2: me. That's not what I said. I said race. Fastest guy at the
4: barbecue. I just want to challenge you to basketball then.
2: Yeah.
10: But shouldn't we all take a a hint from Kevin Hart here? (laughs) Totally. What are
2: are we doing?
10: What are we even doing? (laughs) Why would we we do this? What (laughs) are we doing?
2: I love it. Anna, thank you for the oh, 5 to yeah. 5. Tomorrow, class, right? tomorrow on the show, DJ Uyungalele will be with us 3 to 6 p.m. and Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, along with Eric Revenue, Oregon State basketball coach, and Nick carlin Voigt, University of Portland men's soccer coach. It's going to be loaded with great guests tomorrow 3 to 6 p.m. Leave it here. I think Kevin Hart spoke for a lot of people when he said, what am I doing here? What am I trying to do here? As he uh, tore his Lower abdomen, trying to run a 40-yard dash against a NFL, former NFL running back and uh, prove that he was the fastest guy at the barbecue. The we, video,
4: too, yeah. John. You need to watch the video with it as well because he's sitting in the wheelchair, so it's just kind of funny. But he, you could just <laughs> tell in his face, like, he's just so disgusted at himself. Like, what, <laughs> what am I doing?
2: This doesn't make any sense. I had a, uh, you know, I was, I was not like a college basketball player like you, but I would play some rec basketball. And I used it. Often, after uh, you know, I was in my 30s, uh, you know, in early 40s, to uh, to you know, just to stay in shape. Like you know, there's nothing better than playing, like you know, at the 24 hour fitness. And uh, this was right after Greg Oden had had one of his knee surgeries and problems. And I was at the 24 hour fitness, and I was playing a half court game with some uh, some guys that were in their 20s. Okay. And I got the ball, Steven. I had a clear lay into the basket, easy layup. I drove in. I jumped. And as I, uh, I laid the ball in and as I landed, um, I heard a pop. It was not a good pop. It was a bad pop. It sounded like the pop that you would make if you were removing a chicken uh, drumstick from the carcass. You know, if you just grabbed it like at Costco and you pulled the drumstick out and it went pop popped right out, um, and I realized right away that something was wrong, where I looked down in my kneecap, my patella was down up around my, where my quad is, and I was like, that's not normal, and so I'm laying there in a sweat, and one of the kids comes over, one of the 20-year-old guys comes over to kind of give me a hand up, and I was like, I actually need you to go back to the front desk, and I need you to call an ambulance, and I said it very calmly, because I'm in shock a little bit, and also I'm just kind of going, there's something massively wrong here, I cannot get up. And he said, well, come on, can you stand up? And I said, no. And I said, look. And he looked down, and one of the other kids pulls his phone out and starts trying to record me. Like, let's get it on Snapchat or wherever he's going to put it, right? And I'm like, no, dude, put it away. He put it away. And and then one of them said under their breath, what are you, Greg Oden? I knew at that moment that was my Kevin Hart moment. I was like, "What am I doing? Why am I playing pickup basketball with a bunch of 20 year olds? What am I doing here in the gym?" So I haven't really played since that. I played one time after that after I recovered from the knee surgery because I just wanted to have a successful game, and then I retired. I'm not playing in those games anymore.
4: Smart move. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't played I had played one competitive game in 11 months, uh, and then there was a, there's another blazer fan. Who I did podcast with, he wanted to play me one on one, so I came out of retirement for that just to nice. play him one on one. But I mean it just it wasn't great. I I can still score, I just can't really move. That's my problem.
2: Yeah, that's a hard thing. Moving is hard. That's a realization. Yeah. Let's play some punch it audio. We got the best sound from all around. We do this every day on the show. <laughs>
5: We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio
7: cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound.
5: Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
2: Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, is on the Rich Eisen Show. He was asked if this whole Pac-12 thing pisses him off. Here's what Jonathan Smith said. Punch oh, There's
6: moments. There's no question. I got some bitterness. You mentioned it. I grew up in Pasadena. I grew up going to to the Rose Bowl and Pac-12 versus Big Ten games. Uh, this will be my 17th season in the Pac-12 as a player or, or a coach. Yeah, I got some deep roots here and, and really pride of West Coast football and knowing all the schools and and all that. So yeah, I got some bitterness the way this is all played out. Um, ultimately, I, I see it. It's a business side and. Currently, we're, uh, you know, playing musical chairs, and we don't got a chair to sit on.
2: There it is. Gloria Navarez, the commissioner of the Mountain West Conference, expected to present to Oregon State in the next 24 hours. Washington State as well. They'll also get a presentation from Mike Oresco, the commissioner of the AAC, the American Athletic Conference. They will, uh, they will both be uh, presenting, uh, presumably trying to convince... Oregon State and Washington State, to either merge with them, blend with them, become the Pac-12 with them part of it. I don't know what the pitch will be exactly. I will try to get to the bottom of that at johnconzano.com, but it's interesting to to hear Jonathan Smith talk about it. Will the Beavers use it as motivation? I kind of suspect they will, even if they won't say it. Here's Jonathan Smith and what he said. Punch it. you
6: know I don 't I don't know if I get a hammer a ton with our guys. these guys are motivated uh, they want to they want to win they want to play well um, and just because it, we're it 's out of our control how this is playing out well, the players we 're playing against it 's out of their control too it 's not like they made these calls or something um, so i don't i don 't use it a ton on the motivation side i think there's there'll be guys in our in our locker room that yeah, it might be a huge motivation for them, but as a program we 've built this thing to where uh, we got a chance to compete at a really high level.
2: Got a chance to compete at a high level. Got a quarterback in DJ Uyunglele. Got named the team captains today. Oregon State, no surprise. Four of the five captains are linemen. They're going to ride and die with that offensive line. Jonathan Smith said uh, he does know there's going to be a lot of people rooting for the Beavers. Punch it.
6: We've got opportunity to, yeah. Uh... To okay. play into that narrative, but I'll just say it again. It, it's about us and, and what we're going to do. And uh, There's a lot of people that I think want us to do well, and hopefully we turn into a great a national story, but I don't want to add any pressure to this locker room mm-hmm. in regards to living up to different anti- uh, expectations. we got our own expectations, and we're locked in on those.
2: Oregon State opens the season on Sunday, September 2nd. That,
4: that would be a really fitting way, though. For the Pac-12, all, lose all these teams, all these teams leave. Like, we're too good for the Pac-12. And then one of the two teams that stays, Oregon State, wins the Pac-12. That would be amazing.
2: He can say all he wants, that they're not going to use it as motivation, that it's about them. There's going to be other people rooting for them. That's fine. I think they know down deep that they already – they arrived to the season with a chip on their shoulder. It will be a um, It will be an extra big chip on the shoulder. Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, talking about uh, how he is better this season compared to last.
0: Punch Just knowing what's next, right? Knowing what's next. You know, um, being prepared for the next moment, the next the next day. What, what do we still need as a team? Um, you know, being able to operate with that mentality.
2: Dan Lanning on tomorrow's show. Be interesting to hear him dive a little deeper on that topic knowing what's next. I'm going to have him give me examples of that. I'm going to ask him about Bo Nix. If you have a question for Dan Landing, Oregon football coach, tweet at me, at John Consano BFT. I'll ask him that. We'll hear it on tomorrow's show. JP Morosi, John Paul Morosi, friend of this show, talking about Shohei Otani, suffered a torn UCL. He will not pitch the rest of the season. Here's... Morosi with the news. Punch it.
5: The UCL tear as revealed by Perry Minazzi and the Angels GM after the game. Um, we don't know yet for sure if he's going to have surgery. Obviously, uh, that is one of the options uh, in front of the Angels and Shohei. Uh, he will not pitch again for the rest of this season. Uh, he does hope to continue playing as a DH. So that is the, the positive side, I guess, for now is that he's still able to play. And certainly... As Perry Manazian described this, Lauren, it's just extraordinary that he got the news about the UCL between games and then goes out and has a great game offensively in game two.
2: Yeah, Otani was really interesting. Such a jovial, good attitude, laughing and talking with opposing players. Um, just the whole scene was just really interesting to see. And it, Says a lot about him. There are, it was a devastating injury. Will affect his free agent value. And yet he's out there kind of making the best of it. Week zero is on. USC San Jose State going to play a football game here coming up in 48 hours. Joel Klatt talks about it. Punch it.
8: There are metrics that you can, you can look to and you can look at and, and say, like, are they actually better? One is just the eye test. Do they look bigger, faster, and stronger? Two is like, do they actually tackle? It was a clinic last year in how not to tackle the ball carrier when they face UCLA, when they face Utah, when they face Tulane. They were allergic to tackling. They couldn't do it. Is that improved? We'll see against San Jose State. And then some of the metrics that I'll be looking at, yards per carry, yards per play, uh, can they produce any pressure? I'm I'm interested to see what that looks like because the track record on under Lincoln Riley has not been great defensively, even with
2: Alex Grinch. Really good comment about the tackling and the defense. We talk a lot about Caleb Williams. It will come down to the ability for USC to tackle people this season. And and it may not become that evident in the San Jose State game, but week zero, week one games, they're they're squirrely games. Keep an eye on this one. I know I know Oregon State's going to be watching it because they're going to be scouting a little bit of San Jose State, but I'll be curious just to see what USC looks like on defense. Are they physically, um, you know, are they physically dominant at the point of attack? Are they better than they were a year ago? I think a lot of questions.
4: And it's like you said, you know, it's not going to be where San Jose State goes in and beats USC, but offensively, they're not bad. And they returned nine guys from last season, off the line, nine starters off that team from last year, which won seven games, including Shevin Cordero, a very veteran quarterback. So it's just one of those things where you just, if you're a USC fan, you just want to see some type of progress, right? And it's all about the tackling. They, they were really poor last year. So I'm excited to watch that type of thing. It's not that they're going to lose. I just want to see how their defense reacts.
2: Dominique Wilkins responding to J.J. Reddick's comment that Larry Bird, would not be a top-five shooter all-time. Here's Dominique. Punch it.
3: He's stupid. I mean, it's, it's a stupid comment because Larry Bird played in the most physical era ever. And he was physical himself to say that he wouldn't be able to play in this league because this league too physical. Like, what league are you watching? Physicality is gone. <laughs> it's not like it was back then. And it's nobody's fault. It's just times change. And for JJ Reddick to say stuff like this, the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. And I think it's very stupid and selfish of you to even make a comment like that. It's, it's crazy. And, and if you throw enough crap on the wall, a lot of it's going to stick.
2: Dominique carrying the gauntlet for Larry Bird. I think Larry Bird could have played in this era. Larry Bird could have played in any era. Steven? yeah, no, hundred uh, percent.
4: I, I think all guys, because he would have changed his body a little bit, would change the game. But he's a taller Luka Doncic if he plays the, in the game today. Like he's a six nine point guard that can manipulate where he goes every single play and shoot the lights out. It it's crazy. Like I like JJ Redick, but that take is so bad to say that he would he would not play well with the physicality of the NBA. It's crazy.
2: Ryan Clark. ESPN, went after Tua Tangalaivoa and then had to walk back the criticism. He said on Monday that Tua wasn't in the gym, was was not at the dinner table eating what the nutritionist had advised. He compared him um, to, to a stripper who had bulked up 10 pounds in the offseason. Um, Tua responded to the criticism.
0: I mean, I think we all worked hard throughout the off season, um, and I'm not someone to talk about myself the entire time. But I mean, it takes a lot. You think you think I wanted to to build all this muscle? Like, not to some extent. Like, I I wanted to you know I wanted to be a little lighter. There's I know there's a mixture of things that people don't understand, that people don't know about, that are talked about, that go behind the scenes. So you know. I'd appreciate if you kept my name out your mouth. That's what I'd say.
2: Clark has since apologized, saying that, you know, he he respects all NFL players, coaches, executives, staff members. He said he'll do his best. He said he fell short on Monday, and he apologized for that. I think Chua becomes an easy target, becomes low hanging fruit, because I think Miami gets a lot of attention, and I think there's an unfair amount of pressure, energy. Expended to uh, focusing on Tua in particular. Um, keep an eye on Miami this season. I thought they, they were sniffing around some big success last year.
4: I also think, doesn't it kind of remind you of what we talked about with Stephen A. Smith and Lonzo Ball, where maybe it's one of those things where Ryan Clark heard something from one of his yes. sources and then went with it and over-exaggerated it a little bit. And so I, I like Tua coming back and being salty about it. It was a good response by him and by Lonzo Ball with Stephen A. Smith, but it might have been just one of those things Lost in translation uh, from one of your sources.
2: Leave it here. Coming up, Bo Nix was asked about the Heisman campaign. What he said, it surprised me a little bit. We'll hear from Bo Nix next. Oregon football coach Dan Lanning on tomorrow's show, along with DJ Uyunglele, the uh, quarterback at Oregon State, starting quarterback. Uh, The starting quarterback at Oregon has never been in doubt this season. It'll be Bo Nix. And uh, the billboards have gone up in New York. The billboards have gone up in Dallas, Texas. Who knows where the next bodacious billboard will go up. But uh, Bo was asked, did the Heisman campaign have any impact or influence in his decision to return to the University of Oregon? What did I expect? Not quite this. Well, you know, they they sure can't give you a
1: Heisman, so that's not necessarily a reason, you know, I came back. I came back to win a championship, and, um, you know, I came back to play with my teammates one more time and, uh, you know, play at, at Oregon one more time, you know, have a season with, um, you know, the fans and the history one more time, and, um, you know, all that can take care of itself. You know, I think on the field is where um you know you got to go out there and really make strides and really grow and um you like i said earlier you got to keep what's the main thing the main thing or you'll just lose sight of it and then
2: um, you won't be as good as you can be i thought he might allude to the fact that it was part of the uh the package that Oregon could offer if he came back cuz it sure feels to me uh, i'm going march simpson there I, it sure feels to me like you like Bo Nix and this billboard campaign, it's not accidental. I mean, you don't just decide today to put up a billboard tomorrow. This was months and months in the planning. This was Oregon making a concerted pitch to have him back. And it's Bo Nix um, going, This is not a bad thing for me either. Were you surprised that he kind of went? oh, They can't give you a Heisman. I guess it's a way to answer it without answering it. Yeah, I think he
4: just didn't want to bring attention to it or something. I don't know, which is weird to me also because like your face is on a billboard, where everyone can see it. Like you're getting all the attention. So yeah, it was a little interesting. I thought that he didn't acknowledge it because I'm with you. I you know when I first saw the billboard, that was my first thought was, oh this this was an NIL deal. Like this is what they were talked about to bring him back for the next season. Like we'll make this campaign, we'll make this push for you get this Heisman, you know, bring up your reputation a little bit. So I was a little shocked that uh, he went away from it. But at the same time, I think he just, I think you're right on. Like, he just didn't want to answer the question. He wanted to keep it on the field. Um, And so he just avoided the question at all costs.
2: I think it'll be really interesting to see where he ends up in the Heisman conversation week to week. He's definitely on the radar of the voters. I have a vote. He's on my radar. He has been since last season. But I'm wondering if voters in the South and voters in the North – um, two areas where the billboards coincidentally popped up are going to take notice of Bo Nix earlier than usual. I also wonder if SEC voters who viewed him leaving Auburn as, you know, Bo Nix fleeing the SEC because he couldn't play there, or you know, I wonder if those voters will ever find it in their hearts and their heads to 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 put him on their ballot. I got to be honest; like I tend to because I cover football in the Pacific time zone, I tend to see Pac-12 players more often than I see players in other conferences. It, it leaves me voting for players like Michael Penix Jr. and and Caleb Williams uh, as two of my three choices on the ballot last year. And so I look at that and I go, you know, if, if you can get somebody in front of the voters and let them see that player play, I think it would be very difficult to ignore him. I think Bo Nix has got a chance here to win a Heisman. And I, and I, I think he's got to stay healthy. I think Oregon needs to get to Las Vegas and play for the conference championship. And Bo Nix needs to uh, to have a signature game or two. But
4: I think that, I think it, you hit on yeah. it right there. He's got to stay healthy. And that offensive line lost four or five guys from it last season. Like I, I think is that a real concern that we need to be worried about if you're a Ducks fan rooting for Bo Nix?
2: It is because of last season. And I think, you know, I really, I I cringed a little bit in the middle part of the season when Kenny Dillingham had Bo Nix running more often than you'd like to see him run. And I thought, you know, unnecessarily so, like in games against Cal. But it became evident that they were trying to get him to throw a touchdown, catch a touchdown, run for a touchdown. Like they were, you know, they were campaigning without campaigning for, you know, and, and Kenny Dillingham may have been auditioning for the Arizona State job. But I think it'll be interesting this year because the signature games and the opportunities all come later in the year for Bo Nix. Sure, in Week 2 against Texas Tech, there'll be some eyeballs on him, and he'll get a chance to win some boats in the South. But I think it really will come down to the performance against USC, the performance against Washington, the performance against Utah, and the performance against Oregon State. Can he have one or more, air quotes here, Heisman moments in those games? And if Oregon is at the top of the polls, going to Las Vegas, and Bo Nix has some Heisman moments, he'll get Heisman votes. Tomorrow's show, Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, Oregon State quarterback DJ Uyunglele. It's going to be a great Friday show. we got it all lined up for you. Be here at 3 to 6 p.m. to listen to it. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time. Appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. And read me at johnconzano.com.